Hey guys, welcome. The 831 Podcast, episode 17. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, I hope you had a great Christmas and you're having a fantastic start to the new year. Um, Great end to the year for me and I wanted to stay busy and try and get a couple of podcasts in but I've been super busy at work so hopefully now I can factor a few in. I'm back with this one which I've been talking about doing for a while so I was really pleased that this one came in a bit impromptu actually. Martin approached me and I managed to get him squeezed in but I've got a couple of good guests lined up who I really want to sit down with and talk to so hopefully in the next week or two I'll get two of more of these done. So that'd be great. Um, yeah, I hope you had a brilliant Christmas and I hope you've listened to some 8-1 podcasts and many other podcasts over the festivities. Uh, as always, this podcast is brought to you by um, Trojan Nutrition, Trojan Fitness, long-term sponsors of mine. Um, and it, the podcast will forever be brought to you by them. Brought to you by Sweatbox Bristol, Pedro Bassett, BJJ, which is both where I train, where I do all my training and I am looking to fight again in uh, this year so yeah it's worth giving those guys a shout um hemp guard uk who recently hooked me up with some really good cbd products their stuff's really worth checking out have a look at them go follow uh kelly and those guys over on instagram and facebook check out what they're doing doing brilliant things good clear english who sponsored me for the x pair check out good clear english all of these guys look them up basically follow them give them a nudge tell them you're fans of the podcast whatever i'm sure they'll hook you up so yeah, this one, episode 17, is with Martin Cray. Martin is a videographer, I think that's what you'd call him, filmmaker. He is a paragliding pilot, he is a falconer. Um, really interesting guy. We did a talk together at the Avon Paragliding Club a few months back or a year back or so. And we've hit it off really well since then. I consider him a good friend now. And he's a really interesting guy. This podcast only slightly touched on his career, what he's done, etc. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this podcast. I've been looking forward to it for a while. And it could have gone on for five hours. Literally, we could have just sat and spoke for hours and hours. So, <clears throat> it was really interesting. And I hope that you guys enjoy it. So, this is episode 17, Martin Cray. Okay, so Martin, uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's, uh, thanks it's for been, having me. Yeah, we've talked about doing this for a while. I think since we did that bird, um, since the presentation we did up at the Avon Club. That was the one, yeah. Yeah, so uh, since then we've obviously got to know each other a bit better and spent some time together and I said we should do this and now, unfortunate incidents with you and your health and then me actually at the end of Christmas having an extra day off work and put us together to be able to do it. Yeah, there are good things come out of bad things, I suppose. Indeed, yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, uh, yeah, I just, for me, the reason I wanted to really speak to you is not, obviously you're a, a falconer, a paraglider pilot, but then what really interests me is your your previous careers, your um as I, I guess a cameraman a videographer how would you describe i like I, 
I call myself a filmmaker, but that's probably a grand title because I don't actually make that many films. I yeah, tend to work in the Let's just call you a filmmaker anyway. That's what I'll call you now on the podcast intro. You're a filmmaker. Yeah, I like that title. I heard if I listened to a thing on um, on a film the other day, and it was talking about the difference between art and craft. And I, you know, I'm 57 years old, and I've only just worked this one out. Craft is about perfection. Art is about expressing yourself. That's the right. difference. I was like, oh, so being a filmmaker is more art, more about expressing yourself. Yeah. Being a cameraman or an editor or a director is more about craft and trying to get it right, making it look good. I like so. it. Yeah, I really like that. That would play over quite well in the physical of mixed martial arts or martial arts or stuff. I guess that's why martial arts. Um, there was a famous thing of um, what's her name? Nurse. Oh, I can't remember her name now. A famous celebrity. She said that martial arts weren't in the arts oh not Helen Mirren someone along those lines and it'll come to me shortly um and she said that martial arts weren't in the arts and I think that if you look at art there's not I think martial arts are the an epitome of what art is you know it's you expressing yourself in a physical form which is no different to ballet other than there's contact between us and the other people we use and then yeah putting over the craft side of it would be mastering that and then you can never master martial arts what people people get confused with achieving a black belt and a lot of things lots of people especially in jiu-jitsu will say once you get your black belt the journey begins because you can never master martial arts you know and i guess that's uh the great thing the craft a craft yeah it's uh filmmaking would be the art form and then being a cameraman would be the craft. I like it, yeah. Yeah, and within that, then you get you get cameramen, directors of photography, so the people that you know do big Hollywood movies and stuff. Then they'll express themselves because they, you know, the Storaro, the guy that did uh, the Godfather, not the Godfather, Apocalypse Now, and the stuff like that. They're interpreting the script or what the director tells tells them, and lighting it beautifully and composing it beautifully. So they're expressing themselves. Like, oh, they got something to say, you know. They I'm, I'm trying to talk about how cold and grim this environment is or how threatening it was or da da da, da. so they're expressing themselves as well then so yeah, yeah within everything but there's a whole lot of people who who I mean music's the classic one isn't it you, many a pub band or whatever they're absolutely brilliant you go and see them over and over they're never going to get anywhere because they're just going through the motions they play really really beautifully other people's songs but they're not, they're not saying anything themselves. Then you get somebody like, for instance, like Oasis, really simple music, but they're saying something, so it yeah. works. That's So recently I watched that, um, you may or may not have seen it, uh, the Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody no, by I Queen. Seen it, yeah. Great film, go and see it. Um, and there's a bit in that about when they released um, Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, and how Freddie Mercury was like, this is, this is the record, and the the record producer was like no this is uh the label guy's like no this isn't the song it's like six minutes long it's it's got a stupid name and it's operatic and this is this is not what people want and he's like listen i i'm the artist this is the song this is the one but no this is not what the market wants is not and you you see then that he's it's got creativity it's different it's it was him he was express they were the band were expressing themselves 
with everything and the the label guy the, the guy just saw money he's just thinking money he's just thinking the market he's just and didn't believe that people people can buy into the same creativity that he had song releases drops bam it's massive because i think everyone's creative like, lots of people get lost in their mundane i could like working in an office and stuff there's no way i could ever do it that's proven <laughs> i have a track record to prove that i can't work in offices and stuff me too um, yeah so and i think everybody's got a creative a, a, a creative side they've got that creativeness in them and it gets trapped because they live with them or they don't explore it and i think once you start to express that creativity which i've obviously done from a young age which i'm assuming I'll make this assumption. You can clear this up afterwards. I'm assuming um, filmmaking was the beginning of your creativity, and then you you begin to run with it, and then you start to find things like falconry or paragliding, etc. Because once you Im immerse yourself in something that is really creative, your whole life becomes creative. Then, so I don't know if filmmaking was your first expression, or if it started earlier uh, on. That's funny actually, because well, I started off I was drawing like so many kids and I used to draw birds of prey and I lived in London I'd never seen a bird of prey I don't know what where the fascination came from but when I moved out to Hampshire then we started seeing them, although they were rare as rocking or shit in those days because that would have been the 70s so immediately post DDT so there yeah. wasn't hardly any hawks but yeah so I know so and then I was one of those weird students at school who I aced it in junior school and then when I went to senior school <clears throat> I kind of lost my way a bit and eventually they said you should go to art school so that's what I did I did a I only did the art foundation I couldn't ever focus on anything or concentrate on anything so I used to, I just did that for a bit but having said that my excellent you know everybody's got one of those teachers at school that was the hero that sort of saved their bacon and mine was this guy called Peter Cuff who was the art teacher and we used to make films we used to make 16 millimeter films at school proper and I, I I liked the idea of being the director so much so that I made him lend me his army jacket <laughs> so he had a US army jacket with the sergeant stripes I remember on it and I used to wear it over my shoulders not, not on and a pair of his sunglasses and sit on the top of a stepladder while I was being the director oh you were born creative <laughs> there was no turning point for you you were born with that creativity in you if I could have had a big cigar I would have had one <laughs> but yeah so but then I just the sad thing was in on my first day of art school we had to sit around in a big circle and you had to say what you wanted to do and everybody and some people if they had a good sort of uh, secondary education they'd they knew what to say and I want to express myself on canvas and da -da -da -da. there was a lot of people which they always are in art colleges who just want to draw really really well and art colleges aren't really set up for that that's illustration so they so they, they tend to poo-poo it and I said, I want to direct feature films. And everybody, including the principal who was leading this session, burst out laughing. So that was the end of that ambition. I never, nobody <laughs> said, well, then you should study photography a bit and then go on to film school. They went, oh, you're joking. As if I said I wanted to be an astronaut. So that was it. I thought, oh, well, that's never going to happen then. But I kept on studying photography, mostly because I found it as a really good way of getting girls to take their clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, photography you say yeah. <laughs> right then oh please let me take my clothes off for you excellent so yeah so I did that for a bit and then and girls took their clothes off they did yeah 
Just nice. Well, it's the seventies, man. Well, the eighties, which was even better. I guess photography was really sort of taking off then and getting going. You've had a lot of people maybe manipulate a position now, so girls are probably a lot less inclined to take their clothes <laughs> yeah. off for well, photography. Well, also, that there was no internet, or you know, you couldn't share anything. You could you could print it yourself and take a bit of eight by ten paper around and show it to somebody. So there weren't there was no in the fear that it was going to go yeah. global or anything. But um, yeah, so I did. So then the route, standard route in those days was you become a photographer's assistant, which wasn't that easy to do. I had a lot of time um, doing absolutely nothing really of any value. I did, got a lot stronger because I ended up working in a haulage company um, and I was the weedy little puffy art one and then ended up being out to lift hundred weight boxes above my head. <laughs> <laughs> but which is how I got my first job as a photographer's assistant because I didn't have the skills or the knowledge and they were sort of telling me I'd had about 19 different interviews and they'd all said it's not going to happen and eventually I went for it was Fox Tolbert who was the the royal photographer he used to do, go on tour with the Queen and, and the royal family and I got down to the last two for the interview for that job and then they basically said can you pull a Hasselblad apart and put it back together blindfold and all this stuff and I was like no because nobody will give me a job as a photographer assistant so I can't learn it and he goes, well, you know, the other applicants have done this, that, and their dad's this famous photographer, and I, and I just got really cross and just lost my temper. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that, but I could lift that fucking box from up there with one hand, and I could empty this whole studio out and put it in the back of a car for you in 10 seconds, and I bet those people can't. And he went, you seem like my kind of guy. You've got the job. Oh, nice. <laughs> but I ended up actually not doing that because I was too honest, and I, hadn't take, I was about to take my driving test, and I hadn't taken it. I should have just lied and said, yeah, I've got it. And hoped that I passed but anyway but anyway I went on to become a photographer's assistant um, and then ended up working in a dark room which was hell for me because I hate being indoors anyway yeah that doesn't sound like I mean I, I have no experience of dark rooms or developing uh, photographs etc because I'm of you know I'm, I'm 35 years old there's always been some sort of digital format or the 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 closest for me would be taking a roll of film to boots and getting it developed for me you know but you see it on films and stuff and <laughs> it, it was, I always find it intriguing you put it in this solution in that solution and you hang it always find that intriguing and I thought well that'd be really cool and then you see it stuck in that dingy dark room and it thought, stinks yeah, as well it smells horrible it's a really strong chemical smell and the thing is in the winter getting to work at eight o'clock you know it might just about see daylight before you went into the door I leave at five it'd been dark an hour but in the room that whole time yeah so you'd it, maybe at lunchtime you'd nip outside for and, and it, to be fair in those days you used to get an hour's lunch break a proper hour but that'd be the only daylight you'd see and that just just drove me crackers so i couldn't do that so uh, i eventually had to chuck that away and i did sort of get the opportunity to go into film which is still what i wanted to do i was doing photography because i didn't know you could get into film and then um my the photographer i, I ended up working freelance for a photographer who had been who I had worked with at a different company and he'd gone off on his own and I went with him and uh, his best mate was a Thames television cameraman who in those days I mean they were I think they were on I could be wrong but I think it was like they were on like 300 quid a week and this was been 1982 which was that's like three grand a week now yeah they were really well paid they all had out or they always used to live in Fleet in Hampshire <laughs> I don't know why 
and they all had swimming pools and jags and it was a really, really unionised job but the only way you could get in was it was you know a dead man's shoes and it was a union controlled and it was a catch 22 because you couldn't get a union it's a bit like equity you couldn't get a union ticket if you weren't in the industry and couldn't get into the industry if you didn't have a union ticket yeah yeah so like a lot of the film schools and stuff that's why you did it was because you got the ticket at the end of it but I did get a job it used to be on the notice board in the canteen or something I don't know and uh, he'd phone me up so oh, you got to go for this interview and it was at Shell Films when I was a kid you always used to have sort of one afternoon a week off and you'd go into the assembly hall, boys in one room, girls in another, and they'd put a 16mm film on, a proper old... And this thing had come on. And now we're going to look at how the whale makes everything so perfect for us all. And there's these really like, public information films that Shell used to make. They were hilariously rubbish. And it was working for them. And I was like, oh, brilliant. That was a dream. I want to make one of them. Yes. Those crap films. I want to be responsible for crap films in schools all over the country. <laughs> but the students, it was in the Shell building, which is that big square building opposite Hungerford Footbridge, next to Waterloo Station, on the Thames in mm -hmm. London. And they came in and they were like, congratulations, you got the job. Do you want to come and see where you're working? And it was right in the middle of that building. It was like five corridors away from the nearest window in any direction oh. and I was like I've just spent a year and a half in the dark room dark. <laughs> I was like oh. oh no and I sort of really hummed and hard I was like oh no I can't do that well I would have been training as an editor so I'd probably be worth a fortune now if I'd uh, if I'd done that but I didn't so yeah so then I didn't um, so yeah so it's a really torturous route so after photography then I just went off into the wilderness again for a bit because <clears throat> I sort of disillusioned I hadn't got anywhere as a photographer and I was um, decorating, my brother used to race motorbikes and he was, uh, the guy that he used to race with was quite wealthy and I was decorating his house and he came home one day and said, you can draw, can't you? And I was like, yeah. And he said, can you draw with felt tips? And I was like, I don't know, I've never tried. Why would I, why would I want to draw, draw with felt tips? Yeah. And he goes, because it pays really well. I went, what? I said, I had not a clue what he was talking about at all. He said, do me a drawing in felt tips. I'm going to take it to my, my boss tomorrow. So I went straight from his house to WH Smith and bought a kid's set of felt tip pens and the long sort of biscuit tins that used to come in and copied this photograph out onto a bit of paper. And he took it into his boss the next day. And the next morning, I turned up for work in my painting overalls to decorate his house. He said, no, bollocks to that. Get in the car. We're going into London. So drove into Kensington and I started working it was an advertising agency and I started working from that day just a chance yeah absolute chance so I started off as a, what they call a visualizer in those days there was no photoshop or anything like that if you wanted to show your client what an ad was going to look like you had to draw it draw it yeah storyboarding people still know what storyboards are. I ended up doing storyboarding but it's the same process so it was magic markers not felt tips <laughs> and it's you do it on paper that you can trace through and you do to start tracing photographs out and creating what this ad's going to look like so I did that for a long time and that's the last time I've ever made any money in my life I made a fortune yeah <laughs> and I thought I was on a real roll I won a prize because I started then becoming what they call a an art director which is the the picture side of an ad so one guy writes the words the other guy does the picture yeah and between the two of you you create the ad and sometimes it it's just like a teamwork thing. You just yeah. build off each other and come up with ideas. So I started doing that and I went on some courses 
and won prizes on it. I thought, oh God, I can do anything. I'm a genius. So I decided to go off to film school. <laughs> That's it. From that day till this, I've been poor. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, you enjoyed the uh, illustration side of things? and uh... Yeah, it was, it was, it, that was much more craft than art so there wasn't expressing myself at all it was just something I could do yeah. and the bosses would always bring the clients around and go oh this is Martin he's the one that did those wonderful storyboards and they go oh that's such a skill you're so clever and I was like really I'm tracing it out of a book mate yeah <laughs> and it was just and I, I was they used to get freelance um, the really, really and they had a really big campaign they'd get some they'd parachute in some freelance guy who was a genius who had a real style to what he did. Mm-hmm. And I would just be like, is, I would, if we, I can't think of a good example, but cars would be a good example. So he'd go, he'd draw the design up yeah. and then he'd say, oh, can you do the wheels and the tires and I'll do the bodywork or something. And we, you know, I wouldn't do the really clever stuff. So if you're trying to make it look like a shiny metallic car, that's quite a difficult thing to yeah. paint. So yeah, so I learned from those guys, but they were brilliant. Then they showed me how to do it. So then after a while, I could do it. It was it was that was craft side. As you describe it, it sounds like a really cool job. Um, I guess when you're in it eight hours a day, uh, perhaps you just think, oh, "Fuck, I just got to create a fucking storyboard over and over again." And I guess you do it, and it's not quite right. So you got to do another one, and you got because it's not. I guess like editing on a laptop or a PC where you just erase what you've done. You have to start again and redraw again. And then so you're drawing the same thing three times. You're drawing, so you I guess, draw the same thing a hundred times. Yeah, so monotony, must it must become monotonous <laughs> and it must be, like, yeah, I guess it is an arduous task, but it sounds really romantic and it sounds like you're getting paid to draw. Oh, it was, There's not going to be many people who listen to this or are laying patios in the freezing cold or are going to be like, wow, that guy had it bad. Someone rescue him. No, I would uh, love to be doing it now. It was, I mean, I lived in a cushy office. You could wear like nice clothes to work because you're just in an office. I didn't get ink all over me or anything. You used to go to the pub for lunch. That was the norm in those days. And if you want a two-hour lunch, you had a two-hour lunch. And if you turned up to work at 10 o'clock in the morning, you turn up for work at 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, just treat like a king, really. Yeah, My boss used to pay me. I used to take his car. Christ, that was bad news. He used to tell me to take the, take the Merc and his gold card and go into Soho, because we were outside of the main hub of advertising and design, which was in Soho. We were in Kensington. He'd take the car in on a Friday evening afternoon and go and have lunch with this, what had been his business partner, and they'd split up and got different agencies, and hang out with those guys just to see what was going on. And he'd pay for it all. So, crazy. <laughs> it's mental. Now, there was, I mean, it was, that was a period in time when it, it was just, everybody was earning a fortune in London. It was the late 80s, and it was, there was money slushing around everywhere. And I went back to that world about five, six years ago, and they're all in open plan offices, head down on laptops, beavering away now it's like a factory so yeah. it's not like we just had it it's a I, good time I guess it's become it, maybe it's just not not as individual anymore I guess now that you have laptops you can do so much and you can just you know lots of people can do the same thing because you have computer programs that can help you draw that can help you so I guess if you're artistic and you're the one visualising these things then there's a, mar- a mass market for you but if you're the guy who's just taking care of the the colouring etc of I guess you're just sat there on laptops anyone could sort of do it you know I mean that, that is definitely you know the lo- the plus and the minus of the digital era is <clears throat> in theory 
anybody could do it, which could be a minus if you're a craftsman, if you're a guy in his 40s or 50s who's been doing it your whole life and suddenly a kid straight out of school can do it as well as you can, that's a minus. But the plus is anybody can do it. So, you know, if you think of somebody like the streets or some of these sort of backroom musicians who've done singles on albums on their laptop, yeah, the film world is now, that is open to them. They can go out with their iPhone, three mates and a dressing up box and make the next apocalypse now. They could, that's totally possible. Yeah. You could get a bunch of 14 year olds, 13 year olds, be the next Mozart, you know. Yeah, I think uh, so. YouTube is really um, harnessing that, and, it, and people are it, it's great for people. But I think for me, I have a real problem with education in the UK specifically. I guess this is possibly global, but obviously, I only have a massive experience within the UK. A from being a student and then having a daughter who's now finished school, having nieces and nephews who are still in school, and education suppresses creativity so much. And it really bothers me. It bothers me. Like you said that you wanted to do film and nobody took you to one side in that art class and said, listen, this isn't a class for you, but there is no class for you. So let's really harness what it is that you want to do and see what we can figure out together. And I think I used to get it on the on the door all the time and have arguments with people. And the first thing people do is like, oh, look at you, still on the door, yeah, £10 an hour, idiot, uh, and you get into arguments or debates with them and they start you know they'll start saying things like oh you're stupid i'm like what well, because i'm a doorman i'm stupid you've gauged my intellect because i'm a doorman and i'm like that makes you stupid i'm not stupid i got a degree from so and so and straight away i'll try and say to them the fact that you've used education as a gauge of your intellect proves to me you're stupid because there's so many intelligent people there who don't have an education in the world when I say there not right there in the world there are so many people out there who are really intelligent but they don't have an education and education is such a terrible gauge of intellect that it just shows that you're willing to sit down study something and repeat it over and over again and I think the the state of our education is probably because of a, the education is a perpetual cycle. So because you can't think outside of the curriculum, teachers who go into that role generally got on well with the curriculum and they saw a place, oh, this is good for me. I get on well here. So they stick with it. I guess if you've got some people come and train mixed martial arts, they got on really well with the box and they don't like rolling on the ground, a ground on the ground with sweaty men. They don't want to stick with the rolling around with sweaty men for six months to a year. They'll just stick with the boxing. The next minute they're having white collar boxing matches and never fight MMA. The same thing. You, If you get on well in the current education system, the perpetual cycle says you may suit being a teacher. As with someone like myself, I did really well at school. If you were to class how you do with your grades, I did quite well. So, but... The whole time I was hard work. I was kicked out of my English class for six months. I'd sit on the landing for six months. The only reason I managed to get back into an uh, English class is because there was a female teacher and I got on really well with her. I would class the relationship that we had now would be flirty, flirty banter if we were both the same age. But she was, she was a teacher, I was a student. I was cocky, I was arrogant, loved to read. So she liked that side of me. She was quite artistic. And my actual English teacher, hated that so we had to read um of mice and men and 
so she the the teacher put a question or something similar on the board and i said well that's miss you're asking me to answer your question but surely it's up to interpretation if i don't read her or i don't assess that character in that way maybe i associate that character with somebody in my life who's not that way you might see him as jealous i see him as ambitious it's not just got fed up of me kicked me out of class now to me and when i just retold that story it seems really unfair but you've got to assume you've got a 15 year old who's obnoxious arrogant 300 days of the year not just this one day so i got kicked out of my class anyway um i digress and so i believe that the education system is holding so much creativity back and then people are going off to university and studying shit that they're never going to do and they don't become creative until they go traveling or you know you're 21 22 and you've harbored all this creativity that people have said to you you'll never make money doing that you'll never be anything doing this you can't make a living doing that and i think we live in a world or an age now where we're so degree based or education based that we're losing all this creativity within people well i think that, that i mean so there's there is a famous meme that went around wasn't there on facebook and stuff that said never confuse education with intelligence yeah and i think and i did a film yonks ago about cleverness in animals which and we got that's where i became friends with tim guilford from oxford university and he was saying we don't call it intelligence because a machine can be intelligent cleverness is creative thinking it's mm-hmm. it's, it's coming up from they call it blank sheet paper thinking or something along those lines basically if you give a computer a, a sheet of white paper and said come up with an idea it couldn't do it you've got to give it criteria within within which to do stuff but i think the more interesting thing about that that's going on at the moment is that ai is going to be the next biggest thing since the industrial revolution yeah our lives will change as much because of ai if that's the right term for it but because of automation and machines making and doing stuff for us as much as it did in the 17th century for people who lived in the country when the factories first started um but the one thing they can't do is creativity so i can't remember that's i've told this story a couple times but i can't remember what his name is he's a chinese englishman an englishman of chinese origin um who was the the sort of mastermind behind the big idea i think they call it the the david cameron's government came up with this sort of think tank type proposal to try and you know get britain on track and what have you the guy that was behind that it was a it was an entrepreneur million multi-millionaire he is homeschooling his kids and they just do music art um creative subjects and he says because everything else will be done by machines so there's no point in learning to be a dentist or a mechanic or da, 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 yeah. because you'll just get the computer to do it so but what they can't do is write music or paint paintings or write poetry or i don't know just creative stuff so creativity is going to become incredibly valuable in the in the in the future i I also think think that if you um embrace someone's uh creativity and you really focus on developing that that's not to say they're not going to now become an architect or they're not going to now become a dentist or they're not going to now become a surgeon because you've allowed them to express their creativity they have a deeper deeper understanding of who they are and how they want to express themselves when you railroad or tunnel someone down an avenue of dentistry or surgery these are the things my family come from this is what oh i have to my father was this my father was that 
you're you're ch- you're challenging them and pushing them down this route, and then when they get old enough to to express themselves and find out who they actually are, they realise, fuck, it's not what I want to be. No. But if you give someone the the parameters to express themselves and even nobody express themselves, become themselves, then they might choose that educated path anyway that might be what they want to do I, I've expressed myself I know I'm creative I like to play with colours and I like to write music and I like to play but what really interests me is the human brain and how that works and why do people get multiple sclerosis and how do I um, just how do I look at the myelin it's wearing away around these nerve endings what can I and because you've allowed them to be creative that's the path that they chose and I honestly feel that people think that letting their children be creative they're holding back their education and I, I I think that I think the Danish the way that the Danish do things now or um, the way that the Scandinavians are looking more towards in that they are uh, letting their kids go to school less send them to, to school at a later age a lot of homeschooling and a lot of um, communal schooling I think that's massively important really important I think that's a great I think we'll start to see and books are starting to re- reveal that, and I studies are starting to reveal that 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 you you give your children a much better foundation to exist in the world than you do just with education via curriculum. Like, yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's probably incredibly true, and you've also got to think even within the parameters of so the examples we're given dentistry, surgery, whatever something you think of that seems incredibly technical that you must have had to go to university and then go on to medical school and you've had to learn all this stuff. The guy that gets the Nobel Prize will be the creative one. Yeah, Not the guy who was best at doing the thing. Yeah. It's the guy who comes up with the new technique because being creative, come up with new, is the absolutely fundamental aspect of being human. That's why we're here. And That's we're, why we've got, we can make podcasts. Yeah, and because innovation somebody... comes through, through thought. Yeah. Like, um, all the greats, all the greats, um, Einstein, um, Tesla, etc. A lot of them said it, their thought comes from in a dream, or I don't know, I just thought it. Now, they're scientists, so in the same way that a surgeon, a scientist basically, or he's a surgeon, but the guy who's thinking outside the box, when he stops doing his surgery, the guy who starts to think and is creative in the mind, innovation comes from that. It doesn't yeah. come from repetition of doing the same thing over and over again. Because I can repeat tossing a coin, tossing a coin, repeat tossing a coin, repeat tossing a coin, and just do it. If I then start thinking to myself, oh, if I toss the coin and catch it in my left hand, if before I toss it, I roll it over my knuckle, because I'm thinking about what else I can do with this something mundane just tossing the coin it's the same thing with surgery I guess You're, if you think I'm doing all these surgeries but what if we explore this and we, so it's the guy who now becomes creative through thought and what that creativity wants to express himself who will develop as you say it's exactly, it's exactly that David David Mamet said in his book about directing that the great decisions that directors make which could be something really small but be the thing about that film and you might not even realize that's why it was great but it's it, it could have been done a way and it wasn't it was done slightly differently a lot of the time that will be because one of the technicians says does she wear a red dress or a green dress costumes i said is she wearing the red dress or the green dress in this and he goes oh, i don't know green the he doesn't know why he said that he probably could think it back and and definitely some film critic or some film student somewhere will go oh it was a reference to that but he's accessing that bit of his brain 
that is unconscious thinking i mean it's that comes we do that a lot with paragliding so the days when you go i don't know i don't think i'm going to take off and people go why not you go ah you know it's it's a little bit like the cowboy movies it's a little bit too quiet you go just doesn't feel right to me and go in what way does it not feel right i don't really know but actually you do know this was Jules Brown from Quick Hours Theory, was that you do know it's, it's thousands and thousands of hours of experience, but you haven't necessarily labelled all those experiences and put them in a little box yeah. that you can access. But your brain's going, no, 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 don't do it. Do it. Because last time all the conditions were like this, it went horribly wrong. The subconscious has already made all those analyses, has already analysed it, done all the math, and now it's worked out no we're not but you don't know because it's subconscious you've, yeah. you've done it so many times You've when you first start learning someone's telling you don't take off because this don't do this because this then you take off and you get a little collapse don't, but now subconsciously my brain's done all that analysis and I don't even know about it anymore yeah. I just have a feeling now so now all this thought process has just become a feeling yeah. and I just and definitely say so I got my really big for me was through base jumping because it's obviously a lot the consequences are quite Severe over a short period of time. We're paragliding in the severe. air for a long time. Uh, can go for a it's about time. as severe as it can get. Yeah, it's about as severe as, as it can get. So uh, for me, it's sometimes it don't feel right. Oh, he jumped, he died. Yeah, just he said it didn't feel right, and it's that that emotion or that feeling is complete analysis you've he's analyzed the situation he might have done it in 10 seconds and you might have thought like, oh he said it didn't feel right but he didn't think anything of it no but that subconscious did he'd been analyzing it from the moment he got out of bed he'd been analyzing it from the moment he stepped to the edge he doesn't realize because it's the subconscious yeah he's analyzed it his brain's done all these um mathematical equations it's gone through all the theory without you even knowing with the blink of an eye your brain's already said that smell, I associate that with this. Yeah. Boom. And then you you put it to one side. And it's the people who are, I'll use the word brave, brave enough. It's the people who are brave enough to say, it's not right. No. It's not right. Why isn't it right? It just doesn't feel right. Because in saying it doesn't feel right, what you're saying is, I trust my brain enough to have made the assessment. I don't know what, what my heart's telling me or my... But my bell is telling me I trust my brain enough is not. I don't know what my bell end is telling me. <laughs> well, you should do all those years for photographing naked ladies. You should be one man who can really trust that. That's a sense you're in tune with. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a, this thing I, I I've talked to a few students that I've had in the past about creativity and this kind of instinctive, intuitive, whatever you want to call it, thinking, which crosses over into extreme sports big time if you've done the homework if you've you know there's always these people who think they were just born to do it teach themselves and generally end up dead or injured the people that go through they do the training so not dismissing education it definitely has a part you definitely need to learn and you can learn from other people's experiences and they can say you, you do this and you do all these checks and da 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 and if you then put the hours in, which again is a form of education experience, if you yep. keep doing it, that then gives you the ability to much more clearly hear that inner voice, I think. Yep. So the example I was thinking of is Picasso. So I was never a great fan of his the stuff that he's famous for. I don't find it that aesthetically pleasing. But the point is he could draw as well as the greatest draftsman that ever lived, which was a guy called Ang, which is spelled Ingres. 
when he was eight years old. So he could draw anything absolutely perfectly when he was eight years old. So by the time he got famous, all the marks that he was making were, he had such control, that was exactly what he wanted it to look like. So he's not having a life, he's not taking the mickey, he's not just mucking around. He's just got to this sort of zen-like space where he's learnt the art so well that now he can go with the flow, properly go with the flow, mm -hmm. unfettered. So that, that the stuff that he puts on the canvas is really important because this is the this is what happened you know this is where you're at if you didn't have to worry about technique if you could just do it and and the same will be true in in extreme sports you'll get every now and then you get this remarkable human being who just transcends all of it and he seems like how the hell did he know to go over there and that bit was going to work and da 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 and that's because he's got all the homework done and he's got loads and loads of experience and he's really listening to that. Hour rule. Yeah, now he's really listening to that that inner voice that's just going Or does he even need to listen no, to No, it just goes, it's goes not over a there. Voice to him anymore. He trusts these decisions so much that there's no listening because there's no conflict. It's that sort of, I mean so my issue is not education because I obviously read a lot and I purposely try and stay on a journey of education. My issue is curriculum I should say. And uh the the main issue for me now would be so many kids are labeled adhd or hyperactive or and i think maybe you're just used to kids suppressed creativity that you assume they should behave this way i bet That's, i bet darwin einstein picasso da vinci mozart i bet they were all adhd at school yeah, or what we would label as adhd <laughs> yeah. so i got i remember when i was a kid and that's what they said to to my mum oh where's this hyperactive where's this got i think it was maybe add then or adhd i don't know remember so they said that and i can remember my mum talking to me and like saying oh they say you're this they say you're that and i can remember being like 12 years old and just thinking no they're just full of shit and that's exactly how i felt at 12 i'm like they're just full of shit like i don't want to go and learn about this science and I don't want to learn how to mix this chemical with this chemical to produce this because it's not going to fucking benefit me in the slightest unless I'm going to be a scientist or a teacher yeah. and I come from really early on 12 or 13 understanding that understanding that realizing these two chemicals mixed together will cause a, a little cloud or a plume of smoke it's dangerous <laughs> I, I get it yeah brilliant you've told me but I'm never going to have access to those chemicals unless it's a, an avenue I want to yeah. pursue some people sat there and their jewels were wide open they were in look, completely indulging what this person was telling them as for me I'd be looking out the window and I'd be thinking look at Robin on that gatepost that looks really cool or someone else would be doing PE and I'd be thinking why can't I do six hours of PE today and I just think that I was labelled by some teachers disruptive and because I would finish my work a lot quicker I was in top set of maths finish my work and I'd be disruptive because what else are you going to do you know yeah. I want to be an entertainer as well I want to be the comedian so then they like we're going to put Wesley in bottom set of maths and he can help the people down there and like who are usually in the bottom set of maths all the disruptive kids so if you put Wesley who's known for being disruptive but he finishes work in with all the disruptive kids Wes wants to be the entertainer now of the disruption. So it was a nightmare, but I was, I achieved all my grades. And I think I got, you get labeled and there's so many kids now who I think are possibly, we don't have it so much in this country, but in America definitely are medicated because of these diagnoses yeah, that they're getting. Well, that's the pharmaceutical industry in my Yeah, opinion. and I'm just like, why perhaps, 
perhaps we just need to understand creativity. Perhaps your creativity as parents was suppressed because you're going through the same education system that they went through, which again, the curriculum's the issue with me. You're going through the same issue, you went through it. So you're not understanding it's his creativity. You're not creative yourself. He's got all this creativeness harbored within him and perhaps his creativity lies outside of the curriculum, which mm. is why nobody can understand why he's well, behaving how he is. I think there's a bigger issue there as well, which is massive. And that's just something I've been bleating on about a bit recently. Is I'm beginning to think that we're like. So in uh, Harari's book *Sapiens*, he he book, by the way, awesome book. He um, he p- puts down the, the thesis that capitalism fulfills all the definitions of a religion. If you look up what makes a religion, and it's got certain criteria, then capitalism fulfills them absolutely and at a low level that's not a big deal but when you get fundamentalist religions which we all know about in the 21st century we know where that goes then you have problems and I think you've got that that we seem to be lurching towards fundamentalist capitalism where at absolutely any cost we've got to get rich just like some lunatic I would take I'm not going to take Islam as an example because everybody always does. There are fundamentalist Christians who do bloody horrible things to people because they think those people are blasphemers or, yeah. you know, they've done something wrong. And, and you know, the Ku Klux Klan would be a good example. They're outside of the way we want things to be, so we must punish them hideously. They are, but they would see it as collateral damage. They would just say, well, you know, in, the, in, in God's great work we did da-da-da, I think capitalism does exactly the same thing. I think it will say that, well, we didn't mean to poison all those people. We were just trying to make money out of this product, but it leaked into the water supply. You go, really? Really, actually, is it worth it? And I think, so that's a long way round of getting to what you're saying, is that the education system, I think, probably in America, I don't know it well enough, but definitely it seems to be the way that we're going when we've been saying, oh, kids have got to study more sciences, they've got to do more technology. That is only works if you want everybody to be really wealthy and that isn't necessarily the route to happiness or you want to keep people in the perpetual cycle of capitalism yeah so there's this thing of socialism doesn't work it's proven socialism doesn't work well socialism doesn't work if you compare it to modern uh politics or to modern uh social modern societies it hasn't worked there but have we really adopted socialism if socialism gets completely adopted and you ignore the financial wealth, can it work? I'm not socialist in any way, shape or form. It's uh, something that I think would be a lot better than capitalism. However, I do think that Animal Farm has taught us that socialism can be somewhat destructive. Yeah. Um, so I'm not one for, for socialism. I'm not a socialist in the slightest. But people are so quick to say, it won't work. It's like, no, it won't work compared to a capitalist yeah. uh, world that we live in. I do, however, feel that this needs to fucking change. Like, why can't happiness become a religion? Yeah. Or love? What happiness or love? Instead well, of happiness the, was parts the, of religion. That was generally what Jesus was saying. That seems to have got a bit hijacked. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's... <laughs> the, 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 that was, I was, we were talking about this the other day. It's like, the Ten Commandments are pretty much the ten things that most Abrahamic religious people don't follow. Yeah, so they yeah. do kill, they yeah. do covet their neighbour's ass, and all the other things. Like, but it's okay, this is the they, fun of your they religion. do it in the name of their religion, yeah. so that's what I, which is absolutely ridiculous. I just think if happiness or love, which are two things that cannot be controlled by anybody but yourself. 
So people can take take things away from you. They can take your freedoms. They can put you under torturous circumstances. They can do all of those things, but they can't control who I love and they can't control what makes me happy. So if within those torturous situations, I decide to say, well, okay, today this is really bad, but it's better than it was yesterday. And that makes me happy. And actually this is happening to me today. And I saw that Martin was walking down the road. I'm happy. They can't control those things. So then eventually someone has to say, well, we can't take anything away from these people. So nobody has any, any control over you. There's no control. The, ma- the moment there's no control, people can be truly free. Mm. And capitalism and wealth and education within a society are all control. That's all a control. And it's a mechanism to keep you doing the same things, which are perpetuating capitalism, which is shit. Like Sapien's book, when I, I listen to it on audiobook as opposed to reading So it. did I, actually. Yeah, yeah which I, I always have at least one audiobook running and I'm reading a book at the same time. So I listened to that on audiobook, which I'm really pleased I did because I think it would have been... I think it came across a lot better for me listening to it. I, I, I thought that there was a really... Strange you said, I thought it was a really good choice of narrator that he just had that accent and delivery that meant that... The, when you listen to Harari in interview, he's quite a funny bloke. Yeah. And, and he's... And he's you know, he's got that kind of Israeli, Jewish, whatever you want to call it, sense of humour that is slightly kind of knowing and ironic and sort of accepting, you You know, that's the, well, it would, they, well, they would, wouldn't they? Would be, it would be how I would explain how he speaks. Yeah. And he sort of got a bit of a laugh in his voice. But I think if he'd read it, it wouldn't have worked. But the guy that reads it is kind of flat, but then he puts the sarcasm in, yeah. which is, you know, the kind of, which was very nice for them. So I think we're just talking about something that yeah. goes really well. And because he says it in that voice, he went, oh, this is really entertaining. It's kind of... Yeah, that's It was what... like David Attenborough putting a dirty joke in the middle of a... Of one of yeah. it, was just, it really worked for me. And I, I, I drove it... I was listening to it on the way up to Scotland to go grouse walking. And it's like a 10-hour drive or nine-hour drive each way. I listened to half of it on the way up and half of it on the way back. And I was in a hire car. I had like five, 10 minutes left to go. And I got back to the to the hire car car park in in uh, Hereford, and I was like, "Oh, I haven't finished the book." And I went, as so I ran in the office, I said, "Look, I know it's got to be about midday, but can I have ten more minutes?" And they went, "Yeah, of course." So I went back out and sat in the car park, listened to the yeah, end. Of it. Yeah. I regularly do that. I'll get to a chat and I'll do a lap around the block, and I'm literally driving around the block. Why did this park on my drive? And listen, I don't know. I'll literally drive around the block for a little bit. But it's narr- uh, narration's massive in audiobooks because I've had a few books that I've listened to and I grind through them, and I'm like, Phew. and then there was a book called Mythos about Greek mythology and um, it's narrated by Stephen Fry I know if I'd have read that book I wouldn't have found it as entertaining because yeah. it was narrated by Stephen Fry I was like yeah what because he just it, it, he's sarcastic he's witty he's intelligent he has that little he can change just the tone of his voice slightly and become someone else and that I loved that book he's got a new one now called Heroes but um, that I think it's called heroes yeah mythos was the first year so i really loved it i recommend that it's not a subject i was ever interested in reading mythology listen to it i was like brilliant absolutely love the book and so i think you're right narration is massively important and the the narrator of sapiens was fantastic and i, I read a lot of dawkins i like Daw- and bill bryson so i like bill bryson i like dawkins not not linked in the slightest are completely different genres um <laughs> But I read their books and their witticisms and their charm with their writing. I have a voice associated with that in my head. Now, if I was to listen to an audiobook, 
and it doesn't conform to that. Oh, that's like, interesting. Mm. And another one's Rupert. Sh- do you know who Rupert Sheldrake is? No, I don't know. He's a, I believe he's a biologist. Um, he used to be really good friends with Terence McKenna. You know, Terence McKenna is the guy. Terence McKenna was the guy. Uh, I guess he be classed as a philosopher maybe I'm not sure but an American guy who did a lot of experiments on mushrooms and LSDs and stuff like that really famous okay. guy so Rupert Sheldrake was one of his friends and they used to sit together and they used to take lots of mushrooms now Sheldrake is someone who uses link. he uses spiritualism within his science and he sort of gets ridiculed and criticised a lot and he says about how plants are linked spiritually and the communication between plants etc great guy his books are really good and you listen to his voice he's got a really strange voice and accent English guy but um, you listen to him I could never hear anybody else do one of his books now because no. I know it's Sheldrake I have to hear Sheldrake's voice you know narration so important on audiobook the funny thing is with Richard Dawkins when I, started, I tried to do The God Delusion and um, whatever the other really famous ones were The Selfish Gene yeah. and he like he always goes over the same point and he's, he's emphatic isn't he he's yeah. winning the argument and I'll give you and another example and another, then I'll go oh, bloody hell but when I hear him like when he's done stuff for um sort of uh, Amnesty International those kind of big shows that mm-hmm. they do and he's the and he goes up on stage so he's fantastic I really like him live so I actually I think I probably prefer to read his stuff with him reading because I like his personality so I, I've not listened to one of his on audiobook yet I've no nor have I but I'm just thinking it probably would work probably would work and because I've heard him on podcasts or on things like um I don't think it's a TED talk, but something similar. Um, now, when I read the book, I read it with his witticism, and Bill Bryson is the same. I we I read because Bill Bryson will be so. I read any Bill Bryson yeah. stuff, so cutting about someone. <laughs> you know, like, and I said to the doddery old bitches. Obviously, I didn't, but that was what I was thinking. And he says that in his book, and I could hear him saying it, but it's like slight Australian twang, and his voice, and I really like it. So I don't, I don't think I could listen to any of their books without their narration now. so when I read them I sort of read in their voice I don't but I sort of so there's a, a charming bit I read it in there yeah. I, I'll sneer a little bit to myself like have a little giggle or something you know and I, yeah, I did you ever it. ever see one of my favourites of comedy was Richard Dawkins he just goes up on stage I think it was one of these big sort of gal I can't think what you call them but I think it was Amnesty International one of those and they have a big evening in the Albert Hall and lots of different people come up and do readings and stuff I can't remember it's, a, it's the secret policeman's ball one of those type of things and all he does is his act is read out all the trolling that he's had so he just reads out all the Twitters of people yeah. <laughs> saying and he goes and he reads it verbatim so he just says fuck off you cunt and he's just reading it in his voice. <laughs> yeah. and, just, and then he also gets all it, of course, is full of spelling and grammar mistakes. So he yeah. reads it exactly as it's been said to him. And he just goes on stage with a piece of paper with all. Is these. it long? No, it's really. I'm going to see if fun. I can find it right now on YouTube because <laughs> I'm really interested in that. I just love it how you just. And I mean, it's not to say I believe or disbelieve what he's saying. It's not. Uh, I, I love his books. I love. I mean, he is staunch atheist, yeah. staunch science. And I'm 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 very much agnostic in that I um 
I, I believe there's something. But what? I don't fucking know. So, um, I believe, and I'm, even now, some, sometimes I think it's simulation theory. Sometimes I think it's hologram. Other times I think it's spiritual. So I just don't know, basically. But he's so staunch. So, another person who's staunch atheist, Ricky Gervais. I don't like him, so love his stand-up. I think his stand-up's brilliant. But, Ricky Gervais is so staunch atheist that he starts saying to people, he starts to really put people down yeah, I don't for like believing that. and I'm like but you don't know as well no you don't you have no idea whether this no. is true God might exist and what Richard Dawkins does is he's like I'll disprove anything you say with science and you disprove any of my science if you can't we'll believe the science shall we I've got a Which t-shirt that says that I've yeah. got a list of 10 things proved by science that were later disproved by religion and it's obviously 10 completely empty yeah. So, which I love, I love that. Ricky Gervais will literally just tell people they're super, super thick because they. Yeah, no, I, 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 I know what you're saying. It's a shame because I think people are. I mean, they're yeah. You can, you know, we, I, we've all had oh Christ when the first time you get to cloud base. If you don't have a religious experience, then there's something wrong with you because it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I get it. I just call it my uh, my sense of insignificance, which I think is really important. I think we all need to experience that once in a while. Exactly, definitely. And there's there's not many better ways of doing it than being at 6,000 feet above the ground in a little tiny bag with some polythene over your head. Yeah. So I've got here, I've got Richard, Jorge, Richard Dawkins hate emails with Richard That'll Dawkins. That'll be the one. I don't think he's, it looks like he's sat at home now. Let's see what this says. Let's see what this says. Hopefully it'll come across audio-wise. Just sat at home by the fire <laughs> on this. I'm sure there are others, but. You do not believe in the existence of God, but you believe in aliens. But the very existence of your animosity, hatred, and mockery towards him proves your hypocrisy. I suggest that you find the longest crowbar you can find to pull your head out of your behind. <laughs> <laughs> if there is no order in evolution, how were you born with your head on your shoulders? <laughs> Dawkins, you're so smart in your own eyes, you can't comprehend simple Bible passages and misconstrue them for your own bullshit dogma. I read your book about the Bible, it is totally sucks ass and is biased and one sided propaganda. Your theory sucks. You are not as wise as you think you are. You hypocrites want to condemn anybody for making mistakes or believing different from your bullshit, retard, atheism dogma. All <laughs> these books are fucking stupid bullshit. <laughs> so if you do not have God in your life, then what is the point of your life? Pointless. When you die, that's it. Game over. How pointless is that? I really feel sorry for you all. i 
Fucking brilliant! I love it. I love that sort of shit. Uh, when I was working, I so I was saying that I did that stuff with um, Tim Guilford from Oxford University. He, he introduced me to Adrian Thomas. Uh, both Tim and Adrian are paraglider pilots. Mm-hmm. Adrian Thomas is doing rather well for himself at the moment. But anyway, they pair of them were down the corridor from Richard Dawkins' office and I kept on thinking eventually I've got to bump into him in the canteen or something but it never happened. I said, like, oh Martin, you're here again. What did you, oh, I didn't leave a pen, did I? <laughs> Just to bump into Dawkins. <laughs> oh, I didn't drop a pen outside Richard Dawkins' office at all. <laughs> I, uh, I used to do it at the BBC quite a lot. So I actually literally did bump into David Attenborough when he had his really dodgy knee as well and everybody went, oh my God, what have you done? I was like, oh, sorry. Well, you'd have been I went around about fucking numbers on your head maybe you took out Attenborough that's not as a hitman that's one job you turned down I just walked around the corner not looking where I was going and bumped into him and he was on a walking stick at the time Fuck I was properly was not popular no mate you don't want to be you don't want to be knocking off Attenborough. what was um, the funniest one I ever heard of that was uh, again at the BBC Alistair Campbell was c- coming down he was coming out of the canter- I don't, it doesn't matter anyway he was on a stairway and I was going one way and he was going the other and I recognised him but I didn't know where for, I couldn't remember where he was so I thought he was somebody I knew so I, so I said alright how's it going he was like yeah brilliant everything alright with you I was like yeah good and carried on walking up the stairs and I'm sure he <laughs> turned to his advice and goes who was that fanboy <laughs> they must get that sort of shit all the time. I, like, really like I, worked, I worked to about 10 paces and went oh my god I just realised who it was <laughs> so you uh, you when did you branch into film? So did you go from the from filmmaking? Were you straight into the wildlife stuff? Did you branch into a little bit of wildlife? I so I went off to so I'd made all that money in advertising and I was feeling pretty full of myself and it was all going quite well. So I thought oh, I've got to do something big with my life. I've got to do something important. So I thought I was going to go to the National Film School and they just weren't they weren't running the course that year for some bizarre reason. So some, I was doing a lot of work in fashion and all of, and I was mates with some fashion photographers and they, they're kind of, you know, they're glitterati fashion photographers. They move in all the right circles. And they go, oh, what the, everybody's doing this course at New York University. And it was, obviously it's fashion, so it was all trends and you've got to do this course. It's, it's what the in crowd's doing. And I was in that world. So, and it was bloody expensive, but I went and did, so I went to film school at New York University is the short version of that story. Care, didn't get any work in America. Went to Portugal, didn't get any work How there. How long were you in America for? Only a year. All in New York? Yeah. 
were here in New York trying to talk. Oh, it was great. I loved it. Yeah, I didn't so sleep very much. I love New York. Absolutely <laughs> love it. I've done a lot of traveling in America, as you as you probably know. Um, so I've traveled a lot in America, but I've only been to New York as a holiday, which I loved. I absolutely love New York. Can't wait to go back, but I'm going to fucking do a year in a big city. No, I'd see, you've got to be very, very strong mentally to cope with New York. It's good. I mean, as cities go, I mean, I'm a real kind of West Coast person because I love sunsets mm. and the beach, da, 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 and I would... You know, my dream place would always be sort of living in the mountains above the sea facing west. God knows why, but that's kind of how I feel. But so New York didn't fulfill that, it's on the wrong side. But it's actually very, very bright. It's like Barcelona. The streets are really, really wide. Mm-hmm. The the climate there is it's pretty I mean, it rains like everywhere else in the world, but it's a lot of blue sky. Yeah. I mean, I would say probably all the time I was there, I reckon it must have been sixty, seventy percent blue skies. Yeah. So and and you can always walk to the Manhattan's not very big, wide rather. So you can always walk to the edge of it and go and look out at the Hudson or whatever and, yeah. and get a bit of sun. So I used to get my sunshine fixes there. But yeah, I liked it. I just there's too much to do and you just don't sleep and you end up well, you end up just like everybody at some point you'll see somebody somewhere just breaking out into spontaneous tears because they haven't slept for about six weeks because yeah. you can't you're like oh but there's this other thing going on and I've got oh I'm going to go do that and I was doing like 17, 18 hour days there and just yeah. broke me in the end so I left there but um, yeah so I came back to Blighty and didn't do anything at all really of any note and then I got the contract to I managed to blag through a mate of mine the contract to film the Paralone World Cup oh, nice. so I thought I've got to do something with my skills or what I thought was my skills I didn't have a clue to be honest I was definitely not a naturally gifted filmmaker no way um, and they sort of put up with me for two seasons and I made a right fist of it so but were I, you a paraglider pilot already at this time? yeah so I was a paraglider before before I went to New York so I, I learnt to paraglide in 89 I went to New York in 93 what was the drive behind that was it oh that's um, yeah that's an interesting little so, so that so it started out in which we haven't even touched yet but the fascination with birds of prey which I've literally as far as I can tell was born with I have no recollection of not being completely obsessed with them Um, and eventually when I was kind of like 18 or whatever I was I was able to get my first bird and then I got eventually I graduated to a a red tail hawk but I was a big biker and I and I'd come from London and my biker mates from London I'd moved to Hampshire and my biker mates from London used to go what well, we always used to call it a run or a hack in those days and they, that's what they do Sunday afternoon hack so they used to come over to see me um, in Hampshire because it was a good run from them out from South London and then I'd fly the red tail for them and da 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 um, and I got into it and I really liked one of the girlfriends of one of the bikers and she was massively smart and I got into a real row with her about hunting um, which was kind of a you know a friendly debate, but it was like an intellectual <coughs> tennis match. And she eventually said her kind of trump card was "you kill for recreation." And at that point, and I was only twenty something young, I um I sort of went, "Oh, that's a good point." So that mm-hmm. kind of threw me a bit. So I kind of realised I was sort of going off the idea of just hunting with the birds. But at the mean, in the, and at the same time, the bikers who were all proper ha- hairy, beardy bikers, hang gliding was just happening, and they were doing that as well. They yeah. moved from from their bikes, and they were doing hang gliding, and they taught me how to ride motorbikes. They taught me how to do everything, and they, I said, "Oh, well, teach me how to 
I'll come and have a go. I'll have a go at this hang gliding. Like, teach me how to do it. And they were like, wow, it's not that simple. You need to um, uh, study paraponting, which they spelt P-O-N-T, parapont. It was the French parapont. Yeah, yeah. Paraponting, da, da, da. Because they'd seen a guy out in the Alps who was flying his hang glider with a golden eagle. And they said, I thought, well, that's what I could do. Rather than hunting, I could start going flying with the bird. Yeah. So many years later, I'd given up Falcon. You moved to London. That's when I started doing the advertising job. And I met a guy in the studio who was working with me who also wanted to have a go at hang gliding. And we decided to go for paragliding lessons, yeah. which we got out of an ad in the, what should be called the Exchange and Mark, which was just. Yeah, like I remember it. The <laughs> <laughs> there was an ad in there. We cut it out. I remember it was on the notice board for about two years. A little tiny bit of paper that we'd pinned up on the notice board. We'd cut this little tiny two line ad out. And that was Mike <laughs> Campbell Jones. And I went there in 89 um, and learned, but then went off to film school. So then I, that took a back seat for a bit. And I flew a bit when I was living in, I lived in Madeira and I flew a bit there, which was hairy because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was all on my own and yeah. flying off in crazy situations, <laughs> uh, properly crazy situations. The of fire though. Oh my God. Like taking off, laying the paraglider on the road, stopping the traffic with the paraglider laid on its back on the road, climbing down the cliff. <laughs> It sounds like the X-Pier. <laughs> and then they're doing like, doing like debagging off the cliff to get the, <laughs> the, get the glider to inflate and then just flying off like that. Oh, God, couldn't do that now. But um, anyway, so I, st I started doing video cameras, got smaller and lighter, and I started doing filming from the paraglider. And then I did some from the tandem. And then when I got invited to do to film the paragliding World Cup, so I skipped forward quite a long time, so it would have been 96, 97 by then, I was like, wow, this looks amazing. This land suddenly looks filmic. You've got this kinetic shots where, you know, I'm with me and my pilot, which was Greg Hamilton. Oh, yeah. He was the pilot. He And he was he knows shed loads about filmmaking. He'd been working in the film industry in South Africa. So he yeah. taught me loads. So we would, we could, he would go, well, if I go that way, when they're going this way, it makes so much. Now those shots are really normal because everybody's got, you know, gimbaled, cameras or they've got drones and you that shot you're seeing it all the time but yeah. then it was really unusual the helicopter shot every movie had one in usually in the title sequence it was always the best bit to me like yeah. cinematographically it's like wow that's amazing so i wanted to do that so i started doing that but that's all i was doing so as a product for the paragliding world cup it was useless because there was loads and loads of pretty shots of paraglides that people hadn't seen before but it wasn't a program it was just a it was the title sequence <laughs> and um and lo and behold the BBC got to see it and they actually wanted to use the shots for a title sequence so they bought them off me and then they said have you got any more and then I kept sending them different things and eventually they said look come and have a chat with us so I met up with this guy and they offered me my uh, I went to go as a job as a researcher and it was in the Top Gear office in um, Pebble Mill in Birmingham on the year that Jeremy Clarkson left Top Gear for the first time and um, and it was a series called Radical Highs. And when I got there, the guy who talked it all out for me met me in the car park and says, look, um, I'm leaving. And he was gonna go off to work with Steve Robinson, who's the, the bloke that made The Man Who Fell to Earth. And then the um, Extreme Live series, which was when Rob Whittle and, yeah. and what's his face went to uh, Nepal and flew the Green Mall and all that stuff. And then he subsequently went on to make Tribe, which was one of the you know, landmark documentary series. So this guy had gone off to work. Bruce 
Tribe was yeah. Bruce Parry. Parry. Yeah. Got the book upstairs, yeah. yeah. So um so the chap that I'd gone to work with was gonna go had moved up a grade and he was gonna go and work on that stuff and that left his position open. So I went into my in, to go for my interview as a researcher, which is just me helping him out, and they said, Well, do you want to direct the series? And I was like, um, okay <laughs> so my first ever job at the BBC was directing my own series a six part series and then I clue and I lied so much that he thought I knew what I was doing and can, where, can that be viewed now still yeah probably somewhere it's called Radical Highs Radical it probably High. exists somewhere um, so yeah so that's how it all started so I just lied and then got a job and I was so out of my depth and I made a right fist of it I did a couple <laughs> of I did a decent one about mountain biking and the rest of the series were a load of old shit and they were massively <coughs> rescued by the editor who's a good mate of mine now but that was rubbish so yeah you that's got, how I got, got into it you got bullshit of it so I, uh, <laughs> I bullshitted too much I say to my brother like, <laughs> just, we just never say no whenever we get asked if we can do something we never say no and we've gone building jobs when we first started like that go to do it can you do this one yeah yeah we can do that yeah no so I go back to my brother he's like, what was someone? oh I said that we could do this he's like we can't do that no come on he's like no 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 is we can't do that it's not physically possible he's like no architect or structural engineer is going to draw what you said we can do he said it's not I'm like no I can see it this comes out here he's like no I know you can see it but it can't be done we can't do it I'm like uh, I just have to think of not saying no just I was never saying no I was exactly the same for ages and I've got Steve Hodgson is another paraglider pilot and he he uh <clears throat> he's very very good photographer but he's really uber smart and um, he sort of wanted to do something else with his life he'd had a bit quite a long time off and so he said he, he, I said well you could come do be my sound man and he goes oh okay but and he's very cautious and he's one of those guys who really dots the I's and crosses the T's and I took him on a couple of sound jobs and it was absolute hell because I just bullshitted and went oh it's fine yeah he's been doing it for years yeah. <laughs> and they would go can you just write this and he go I don't know how to do that yeah, that'd be fine it'd be fun and it wasn't fun and he hated yeah. it and it was a, as it turned out it was a really shit job anyway so yeah I was an ordeal by fire that actually burnt his fingers bless him but um, no I just got lied and then um, got into it and then and again through paragliding then there was another guy who was learning with I'd finished that contract in the Top Gear office and made that series and I'd done a couple of other little things and I was just on a short term contract it was only like an 8 month contract so I was out on my ear again and I'd got used to the salary and the lifestyle those really really nice people I worked with and um, so I wanted to do more of it and I and I moved to Wales because I that was based in Birmingham and I wasn't working so I didn't want to stay in Birmingham so I, I had a bit of money so I'm rented a cottage in Wales just to go flying basically yeah. I thought I'd have the summer going flying and as the money started to run out I was thinking um, <clears throat> I'd better do something else now I'd better get another contract I wonder if I can get one in BBC Bristol and Paul Williams Paraventure Paul Williams he said oh one of my students is uh, works in um, uh, BBC Bristol I have a chat with him so sort of pandy Pandy in after an afternoon of flying on the Pandy Ridge I sat down with him and he wrote me out a list of all these people I should talk to and one of them was the legendary Mike Bainan who's the guy that gave Chris Packham his big start oh, yeah. and gave everybody their big start really mm -hmm. and he was one of those people who completely believes in what we were talking about before about left brain thinking give people an opportunity let yeah. them be creative it's not prescriptive you just do your thing and he eventually 
went off the rails a bit I think or they considered him to have gone off the rails but he was brilliant so he he gave me a job then that's when I started doing wildlife but that was still me trying to do moving it on from filming paragliders from paragliders me trying to film birds of prey from paragliders yeah. and that's kind of how I talked my way into that one told him it could be done <laughs> yeah I could, can definitely do this <laughs> it's been done before no <laughs> so uh, so that was me trying to get back to the idea of flying with birds of prey which is kind of like where it all started and uh, and then uh, Martin Jones a big breeder in Monmouth he persuaded me that the perfect bird for that job would be a peregrine falcon which, which is quite obviously <laughs> is not the perfect bird no. so uh, I spent about six months working on these programs and in between every now and then I go oh, it's a good day today and the boss would go go on then take the camera off you pop and I'd go and try and fly with this peregrine and it'd go off disappear over the horizon and I'd find it somewhere eating something it just yeah. killed I said oh this isn't supposed to happen um, but, but that's how I got back into falconry because of so that bird within the wildlife filming arena what, what were you doing there what were you so that was all to do with cleverness so that was what I was saying about this guy Tim Guilford so we made two or three different series or documentary series some of them were just one off films some of them were like two or three part. I can't remember really but um, <clears throat> none of them were like big blue chip David Attenborough stuff mm -hmm. they were the other stuff that the wildlife unit does um, and they all had a common theme pretty much so we did one about dogs and we did two about cleverness yeah um, and that I found that really really interesting so I went off and did things like setting up tests for pine martins in Scotland and I was also filming the otters uh, in a part of Scotland where they've learnt to, where they've got learnt behaviour where they've done something where they've interacted with humans and they're better yeah. off because of it because they've worked something out so it was all that kind of stuff really so it was it, and, and they did at one point I was going to help head up the animal people department of the natural history unit which would have been a cushy number it was well paid and it was a nice what I wanted really was to be, sort of be given my head a bit and just go looking for these projects and, and work with people who like train animals or that that stuff yeah. so not just pure wildlife but where animals and people cross over yeah wildlife wildlife videography uh sounds to me like the worst job in the world sat possibly in the freezing conditions <laughs> wet raining just in the hope that this wild creature does the one thing that you want or need it to do it sounds i mean it sounds it looks amazing when you watch um what's his name buchanan um, yeah gordon buchanan. gordon buchanan on tv you see him because he and then i suddenly started watching it, so i thought he does a lot of talking to the camera for a wildlife guy i'm thinking Perhaps there's fuck all else going on. Well, it's, it's, so. it's, I mean, it's, it's the way things are going, and I've done a bit of that for the one show now. Is that it's very it's it makes economic sense to do it like that. So if you want to film two minutes of, so the bit a, a good example. So I did a thing for the one show, which was exactly what you talk about: sitting in a hide, filming goshawks on the nest. And I've done that for the last four years now, mm -hmm. and it's become a sort of bizarre, sort of meditative thing because it just you can't do anything else. You just sit out there. It's bloody uncomfortable. <laughs> you, you never get comfortable. I was like, I was yeah. going to put an armchair in there this year, I think, or something. But you're just sitting in this little tiny, essentially a tent, in the woods, watching this gossip nest. And once every three or four hours, something happens. But yeah. the rest of the time, nothing happens at all. Okay. Um, but what they do is they get that. So I film it for six weeks. They condense that down to 
45 seconds and then the other um, minute and so it's a two minute film or a three minute film whatever all of the rest of that film is me talking yeah so some of it's like a video diary and some of it is me and Mike Dilger going look at that look at that gossip as you can see they're just there aren't they incredible are they your favourite birds watching yeah I really love them because if they point a camera at me for two minutes they get two minutes worth of film yeah I point a camera at a gossip for three weeks I won't get two minutes worth of film yeah exactly yeah. so it's, it makes economic sense and also so even if you had a gossip catch a kill and pluck no one's going to watch a gossip pluck a, something it's killed for a minute and a half no 30, and it, well no flight's going to last 30 seconds so let's say you get 10 seconds of flight and kill and then it's going to pluck it no one's going to sit and watch it no. so even if the best case scenario you got the best footage of absolutely what you wanted you're not going to fill the two minute slot with no it. so it's got to have this basically and it's took me a long time to get my head around this just so I say I was not an instinctive filmmaker people want the most important thing in any form of filmmaking there's, there's three words that the audience always wants to know and that is what happens next yeah. that's all anybody gives a shit about don't realise it but that's actually and then once somebody said to me I went ah, that's not true but it is you always go yeah and then what happened yeah. what happened next what happened next so don't dwell on this thing no matter how beautiful it is like, what's the yeah. next thing that happened so you've got to move it on so you have to have a hell of a lot of footage to make a wildlife thing work yeah. massive because you haven't got all the descriptive bits so you think even in a movie you've got dialogue which is moving the story along they're saying to you oh that's his uncle jim and he used to be a bank robber did I? you know that's can't do that with wildlife there's no yeah. nobody's talking so the narrator's got to do it but while the narrator's talking you've got to be looking at something yeah. you can't be looking at a bloke saying my uncle jim used to be a bank robber um and so you you've got just film shed loads of stuff to try and get the story to move on and it's really bloody expensive wildlife filming yeah i imagine uh, you so i understand that the filmmaking side of things and how much you have to film from editing my own um my own paragliding videos yeah. so i could do a five hour flight let's say i do a 130k flight and my GoPro's on, I'm filming, but there's only so much going in a straight line and going around in a circle people are gonna to wanna to see. They wanna see, oh, I flew over Bath, there's the city of Bath. Oh, I flew, uh, a jet plane flew by me, they wanna see that. Oh, I filmed with Tim, I've not filmed with Tim this season, they wanna see that. Oh, I went on glide and I was heading towards the beach because now you can see the sun by, on the sea. They are not going to want to, and that might be five and a half hours worth of footage to condense, and you've now pulled a minute and a half at the most of what was your best flight of the season. But yeah. nobody wants to see the shit. So <clears throat> no, and it's the same with with wildlife. Again. So I think with the paragliding thing, so uh, Tim Pentreath is is I think his stuff's getting better and better. I really like what he does, but I'm really trying to persuade him. I think it's going to be easy now when they've got one of these three sixty cameras. Yeah, that don't put it in subtitles let us see you let us see your face it's a magnificent thing he came and did a talk for our club and there's a thing where he where he did his little his kind of uh volbiv thing in the alps like yes. last summer and it was really really nicely done and there's a bit in it which he was really proud of where he just had this ecstatic moment he goes this is like one of the most emotional bits of my life you won't hear me being emotional very often but he's like you can hear him crying on the on the soundtrack yeah. and he's flying through these clouds and it's stunning and i was like mate if you could if the camera had been facing you and we could see your reaction to this that would be world class yeah. you could that would be you know two minutes of footage that would go all around the world yeah so that's what i think so with paragliding films i just think that you know i i keep trying to do like little seminars on how to film paragliding better 
it, the fact of the matter is it moves incredibly slowly yeah. I mean when you're in an airliner doing 500 miles an hour the ground moves pretty slowly underneath you if you're in a paraglider doing 20 miles an hour it's moving really slowly yeah. so nothing really changes you have incidents that happen so film those but the rest of the time just be nice to see your face and just saying wow this is I'm really why are you here you know I love this. This is amazing. Look at this. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So I think yeah, that's what would be my yeah, top tip. A, I mean, you've not seen my talk on the expert, have you? Not yet. No, no. So that's one thing. There is, I, I'd be walking for fifteen hours a day, but I'd make sure I have my GoPro on me, and I, it's me talking into because who wants to see me trundling up a road? Yeah. So that you'll get me trundling up a road for four or five, six steps, and the camera's back on me, and it's like walking up the pass been walking for x amount of, x amount of hours just it's hard it's boring but this happened and i saw this and then all of a sudden oh look and it's like a buzzard goes by yeah. whatever you know and it's just you realize then that i you can't just point the camera one way the whole time just like i can't stand on me the constantly you no know? A but combination of the two. if i'm telling the story because my talk goes i talk a bit i show you an eight minute video i talk a bit I'll show you a seven minute video. I talk a bit, I'll show you an eight minute video. I talk a bit, I'll show you a 15 minute video. That's my talk. So you can't ask any questions when you're watching the video because you're watching a video. So if I was to just put a 35 minute video on, you might forget what question you had at the beginning. Yeah. So after each day, each day there's a there's a point where we can stop and you can ask me questions. And people say to me, oh that bit where you uh when you were talking to the camera. Um, it seemed like you did I mean, yes exactly it I can't tell you anything more about it because what you got out of it was what you got out of it yeah. and that's exactly it it's exactly it and so when I edited that and put that together I, obviously I had hours and hours because I had a GoPro constantly both of the guys had a GoPro were supporting me so I had so much footage to collate and I was like and it came down to I've got a probably 30 minute video 40 minute video out of it but even that is longer than what you would want to sit and watch as a video yeah, I because I get to talk about it in between, you know? So yeah, I understand. And I mean, I'm not, I have no understanding of, uh, of being a videographer or no understanding of how to be a filmmaker like you do, just to put these little shit videos together, you know? Well, I think, but I think it's, it's, it's a, a, an art form that, can, that people can learn and I think it will become more common. I think people will start to work out. I mean, the, the, the greatest thing that's happened to, to documentary filmmaking is is smartphones the, yeah. the cameras and those are exceptional I mean they're the, the, the smartphone on my iPhone is better than the camera that I won a BAFTA with yeah you know it is it is way better quality and you can see the composition because it's on that screen in front of you so you can go oh if I just move it like that oh if I put my head in there it looks much better yeah exactly. and you can see it all and you can learn how to do this there's a billion you know tuition videos on on like YouTube. gimbals for your phone you yeah can do, all like, that stuff it can be amazing can... and if you can switch between you know if you can show it show it if you can't you know you can't show i'm feeling i'm missing home you can't show that but you can say it yeah, so exactly. say it and it just switch between the two and um and you know if you're having an emotional time then man up and stick the camera in your face and have an emotional time on the camera yeah, I mean, you'll notice they all do it. You watch the that um, Dynasty series at the David Attenborough the last one, and they're trying to get the crew to blub, aren't they? They go, you know, when the penguin was stuck in the ravine, and oh, we didn't know what to do. It's TV gold. They love it. They love to get a tear yeah. in your eye. Yeah. So if you can get it, then yeah, hallelujah. That's it. Yeah, I think uh, 
filmmaking now is obviously a lot more accessible. I, I'd like to film these, these podcasts. I'd like yeah. to film these, but I need something set up, a little studio. So my back room out there, I'm in the process of trying to make it into a studio. But the only thing with that is you have to get people to come to you. That's okay if you're Joe Rogan and you can in, like, mm. get these people. They're dying to get on. People aren't dying to get on my podcast, you know. <laughs> so sometimes I have to take my kit and I have to travel to people. But I'd love to have a little camera set up because this would be great sat now talking to you because this is why I refuse to do them via Skype. A couple of American people have said, oh, I'll do your podcast now. I won't do it via Skype because you and I sat here talking now. There's an intimacy about it, you know. I can... See what, what, what the audience don't know is that we're both just sitting here in our pants. In our pants, yeah. Looking at those pictures of those naked ladies that you've taken. <laughs> but my, I did one, and uh, you can go back and you can listen to it. And everyone who's listening to this can. It's um, one I did. Scrapyards and surrog- scrapyard and surrogacy is called. It's about my friend going through IVF and then through surrogacy to have uh, to have twins didn't know they were having twins but when you listen to the podcast him and I sat together he starts recounting bits he gets choked up I'm choked up if he'd been on Skype I'd have been so disassociated because he would have started to get upset I could have looked around saw my dog sat on the sofa yeah, yeah. but when he's there I can I can feel his emotion you know it got and then I've got a lump in my throat and then that comes across people they might have a response I had people messaging me like can't wait to listen to your next podcast first one I listened to was this one and if you lose that, if, if we'd have filmed it as the, I mean, I listen to all of my podcasts on audio. I don't listen to the video, but if, there are people who sit and watch them. If you would have been able to watch that, or if you'd have listened to it for, I've got to go and have a look at that bit on YouTube. Yeah. And you see how we're both sat there and then it gets, you're like, fuck, it was genuine. They were both. Well, I mean, the, again, it's, you know, the, the kit exists. It's relatively easy to do now. I mean, GoPros are amazing bits of kit. They really are. I keep getting involved on th- in threads every now and then somebody puts on a, a you know where can I get a decently priced action camera I'm not paying all that money for a GoPro and I'm like oh my god it is so cheap for what it does yeah. I mean, we're not sponsored by GoPro but if <laughs> GoPro wants to sponsor us <laughs> we just... will both accept a Hero 7 and I will mention you on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm saying it yeah. um, but I mean it's just an amazing bit of kit really I mean it, I used to so I started doing extreme sports that was my first ever job in television so I did actually no the best one I did it wasn't the mountain bike one I did the, the first ever I did the first ever film about kite surfing and I did the first ever film about Bob Skeleton which now it's all become famous because oh, yeah. we keep winning stuff so I nobody never heard of it and I went out to Switzerland and filmed it and we put a camera on the thing oh this is going to be an amazing bit of footage I took a bloke out especially whose job was just to put little bullet cams he used to work on Top Gear because yeah. he, he came out of Birmingham to um, put the camera inside the car da, 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 da. and the thing is they never worked no. yeah, and it was great if you go around the track in Top Gear and you go let's have a that back no it didn't work let's have another go and it literally it'd be like one time in three it wouldn't work so this guy we t- it took about three hours to rig this thing up he does like a record run down this slope with the camera looking right in his face. <laughs> Nothing. Just all broke that. To do it again. By like that point, it got dark. I was like, oh my God. And now and he's the, pissed off. Oh yeah, and so the, GoPro, <laughs> the GoPro came along just after we'd finished filming. But you know, that kit used to be like two, three thousand quid. Yeah. 
and it was and rubbish. Now you go to Argos, and they've yeah. got sixty of them sat in store, ready to sell you for two hundred. And they work if you just press the button, and then they work, and the sounds good. Everything, and then when people go, oh, I'm not paying three hundred quid for that. It's an absolute bargain. You will get the thing with extreme sports is, it's about that one moment that you absolutely have to get. You know that th- that one thing happened. If the bloody camera fails at that one point, it's worth a hell of a lot more than 300 quid Uh, but it's not for me it's not so I'll happily buy a GoPro Um, I've got I own GoPros so I I will happily buy GoPros and for me it's not about how much the camera is it's how much the memory is worth yeah that's the thing for me so if if I want if I'm going snowboarding and I think God, I have a GoPro I don't have a GoPro because other people take GoPros and want to make a video I'm thinking I want to have a GoPro because I want to record this now, if I can record it in 4K at 30 frames a second, or I can record it in 1080p, but this one was only 60 quid, why wouldn't I want to record it as I remember it, yeah. as best the quality as I can, and spend the 300 quid? What I get from the 300 quid, I don't just get to record that one snowboarding holiday. I get to record every trip I go on now, every yeah. time I go flying. So it's not a, a, a case of how much is the camera, it's... How much is the memory worth? Yeah, I couldn't That's agree more. And it, you know, and in my business, if you've flown or everybody out there and they've gone for this snowboarding trip and da, 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 and then you get to, and they've done this once in a lifetime thing and we get to the bottom of the hill and it didn't work and we got to do it again. That costs a lot more than three hundred quid. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And the second time you're gonna buy a GoPro anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> when I do those one show things, I mean, when I went, so I'm supposed to still I've got one in the bank that I'm. Still haven't done yet, which I'm going to, where I'll take a presenter up on the tandem. We'll have about six GoPros on us then. Just want to cover every single angle. Yeah. Partly because, which is one of the things that going back to how you film um, paragliding, you you've got to be able to cut. And traditionally, any editor will tell you you can't cut from a wide shot to a wide shot because there'll be something, unless it's something completely different. So you can cut from a wide shot of you on your paraglider to a wide shot of Bath but you can't cut from a wide shot of you flying over Bath to a wide shot of you flying over Marlborough because there's so many things in both shots that are similar that it will look like a jump. It'll look like somebody's just chopped a bit out of the film and you'll get this big jump because everything's so similar. So that's why you cut from close-ups to wide. So you you have the big wide shot and you watch a car chase scene, any car chase, American scene now, always see the guy's hand changing gear or his foot going on the clutch. That's just to give him... Because the main action is just either inside the car or outside the car, which is very, very similar. Yeah. So they need a little segue to get between those two shots. So they just do a big close-up of his foot on the clutch or his hand on the gear stick. And it's perfect kind of punctuation. Yeah. So if you did the same thing, if you've got lots of cameras on you on when you go parallel, and you've got one on your face, for example, every time you could go flying over Bath, shot of Wesley's face, flying over Marlborough, shot of Wesley's face, and nobody's going to notice it. It will just seem seamless. Yeah, but if you try and get two shots that are vaguely similar to cut, they won't. They will, anything that's different in them will leap. We used to do it, the classic, absolute, really simple thing to do is do put a coffee cup on a table and film it with your GoPro. Then go around the other side of the table and film it again. Cut it together, and it will just look like the cup jumped across the table. Yeah, and literally yeah, roll it like a boom. And you go, what the hell happened there? And yeah. and that's what you're that's what you're trying to make sure never happens. Bits of filmmaking that people just don't understand, like it's home home filmmakers yeah. don't appreciate or don't understand that. 
the uh, <clears throat> that little that little bit of knowledge just to make your homemade movies so much better. Just yeah. put that segue, have that little segue. Yeah, and they're there. easy to get. And if and if if you you know the BBC sends you off with a GoPro, they'll say, oh, get a load of shots of this, this, and this. And they'll give you a little list, a typed up list. And you're like, what do I need to do that for? Get a shot of your glove. Get a shot of your foot. Get a shot of your your instruments. Get a shot of looking up at the glider. Da, 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 and you go, okay, whatever. And they'll put those in completely out of sequence, nothing to do. You might have filmed it in your bedroom, it doesn't matter, but they'll break up your film for you because a good editor then will drop those close-ups in and make your film look really smooth. Yeah. Or he might come back, or they might might well, they'll look at all your footage and say, oh, that, well, that's great. We're going to send the cameraman out. He's just going to spend an afternoon with you and get a couple of things. He'll go, really? What's that got to do with anything? But it, it will, you know, he'll just get yeah. stuff that can break that up. Yeah, that's awesome. That is really good. So who, when you get sent on these things uh, for the BBC and stuff, everything's sort of decided where you're going. They they decide where you're going. They decide what shots they want. Or you just go there with an open mind. You have to shoot this. Or this is the scene that they want. I just have to put it together. That totally depends on which hat I'm wearing that day. So if I sometimes I just work as a cameraman yeah. and that just do as I'm told. Yeah. And I may well advise them and go, well, we'd be better off filming it from over there or I'd be better off using this camera. Sometimes I work with directors who are a thousand times better than I am and they go, I want this lens on that camera. I want you over there and I want you to do the left, right. And you go, yep, absolutely, boss. You know what you're talking about. Sometimes, generally, in my my role in life is generally to work with the less experienced people and make it work for them. But a lot of the time now what I get to do, which I don't really get much credit for because a lot of the time it's all kind of the, the fakery. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not allowed to to pick it up because it would blow the myth of what you're filming. Yeah, yeah. But they used to send me off and they say, we need this sequence to work. And so they, yeah. I've just done a load of stuff for BBC Wales where they just completely let me off the leash and just give me a budget and said, get this sequence. And I went, yeah. okay. Yeah. All I shall say is it involved a goshawk a winch and a frozen squirrel <laughs> I know where that's gonna go <laughs> I um, th that one show bit that you did with the buzzard that I was involved with yeah. the amount of people who messaged me was that you I saw on the one show with Martin Craig did I see I was like yeah it was me they just noticed me from that split second yeah. and it was disappointing from my point of view that they only used a small section yeah, me too. even if they didn't film me that they didn't feel the impact. No, but this you got to see that that's that whole what happened next thing. So that was a really good example. I mean, that the amount of footage for that two or whatever it was three minute film. Yeah, it took me two years to film that. Yeah, yeah. and I, and that was, oh God knows, probably hundred and fifty hours of film, yeah. maybe more. And there's whole sections of it where I'm training him, where I go, and now he's done this. Look at this, it's amazing. And I'm talking to the camera, and I've got three cameras set up myself and one on him one on me one on everything else and and, it, and it's an absolutely great little sequence and they loved it and they initially edit it and they send it to me they go what do you think have we got this right and I go in and look and say yeah that's brilliant that's and that's and they say what was important to that and I go da, da, da. they say alright we'll put that into the script and then another thing happens and we do this and we have the first time he did this and the second time he did that da, da, da. they dumped they dumped 90% yeah. of it I mean for me it's not even um I don't care about me getting any credit at all or even being acknowledged for it. But the imping is such a... So, there's so many modern falconers out there now don't make equipment, don't know how to imp, don't know how to do it. So when I used two different imping processes as well, and it, we used carbon fibre, modern, 
the majority of the tail was in with carbon fibre. And then I imped a tail or a uh, feather or two with the old technique of the quill of the old feather yeah. and used that to imp the new feather in. Like, those sort of things I thought, I was like, fuck, man. That's, I wish somebody would have seen the two uh, different processes. Too. But I understand it's a short form. It's for, But if, we, it's I mean, if, we did, if they let us do an hour, which I'm to keep plugging away to do, an hour-long documentary, then you can put all that stuff in. And they love all that stuff then. So you think of Helen McDonald's book, Hs for Hook, it mm-hmm. digresses a lot from yeah. the story and, and that's why it sells so well because people love all that stuff so it goes back into history I mean obviously she's talking about T.H. White and that's a fascinating character and a fascinating story so she goes back to that but she's also going about how she's dealing with the death of her father which is a subject we're pretty much all going to have to deal with unless we go first Yeah. Um, so she's got a good subject she's got a good story but then she goes and then and then we do this thing called Manning, and that's what this is. And she goes off at a tangent, and that, that makes for a really nice... Yeah, because otherwise the only people who are interested are Falconers. Yeah, so she's explained stuff. So, yeah. so I'd love to, I would love to be doing a film about... Well, actually, the thing I want to really do is a film about rehab and using all ancient and modern techniques and explain all the art of it. I mean, and the imping would be part of it. We put... They, the Bizarrely, the film I made yonks ago... It's never made it onto British television, which is about um, Scott Mason out in Nepal and him raising awareness of the Diclofenac um, crisis with that killed the all the vultures. Yeah. Uh, and us doing parallel and flying with the... He did what I never really got to do well. I did it a bit, but he did it day in, day out, flying people with birds. Um, there's a big bit in that where people terrible you know the people that don't really understand about wildlife and they just caught this red kite and had kept it in like a cat basket or something yeah. and it smashed all its tail so uh scott was imping that back in and we did a whole section on it and we had a californian guy there who was a scientist asking him what he was doing and we, that gave us the chance to talk about conservation and it was ideal because it was such a good metaphor him being like really caring and careful yeah. and quiet and saying no this is this is this is how difficult it is to 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 get this bird up to speed and it became I, 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 once we got into the edit process the the same editor who saved my bacon when I used to work in the top gear office um Andy Campbell way he just uh he went well this is perfect this is where we can talk about you know how how it's you don't just get them in fatten them up and let them go again you've got all this other stuff you've got to do and this is so intricate and so difficult and it looks really difficult well, yeah so it would be good to cover there's a whole load of that stuff I'd like to, yeah, to it's cover a, off you get um, it just becomes in a Pandora's box doesn't it of what yeah. you can what, like you, one idea goes off and you're like boom 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 all these great ideas well, that's, the thing I find fascinating about filming Paradise and the thing I find fascinating about Falconry both of them I think would make good novels or feature films is why people do it because most people don't do it and most people go why the hell do you do that yeah. or they totally misunderstand it you know that paragliding most people think it's the equivalent of jumping through fire hoops or something they just think you're nuts yeah. they don't realise that there's a kind of spiritual element to it or a I don't know an addictive element to it yeah. or an intellectual element I mean look at all the people that fly really really well literally all of them that do all the rec stuff, they're all brainiacs. Yeah. A lot of them are yeah. all really clever yeah, people. Clearing yeah. yourself, Wes. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, you get, those, you get those rogue guys who are a little bit stupid who also <laughs> do all right. <laughs> but you're right. And for, so people say to me, 
about paragliding oh you do a lot of paragliding like, yeah I can't, like, I, it's like meditative for me and I take off sometimes and I'll fly for three hours and I haven't thought about anything but paragliding I literally land and I'm like fuck I didn't think about anything and I didn't think about anything as where previously sometimes it was hard to read a book because my mind would be going over so as I'm yeah. reading a page I'm doing the shopping in my head you know I'm exactly so, the same and then I, I started meditating um, a lot especially when I I did that. I went away for nine days and spent a year in America. So I went away for nine days, didn't come home basically. Well, I came home after about four months, three months. And then I landed and I got back to Bristol and people were like, what, what are you going to do now? I was like, I'm going again, fuck it. <laughs> and I was back for two weeks and went back again and I stayed then. So I was there for a year. Um, and I started to meditate a lot. I spent a lot of time in the van on my own. I thought, well, let's try this meditating. And I started to really meditate and I was like, wow this is like life changing I notice it every day when I'm jogging when I'm reading a book when I'm having conversations my mind would just be so straight and so on the task in hand but paragliding is the same way for me other than having to check my instruments or seeing where I'm flying and I've been I flew to I flew from um, Leckhampton to Weymouth this year I was away in the Pyrenees and everyone had done Leckhampton to Weymouth everyone did it one day like 40 pilots something did it made it i was like shit that was gonna make it. i was walking in the rain in the x pier <laughs> and then uh i got back and leckhampton was on the next week went there and i was the only one who made it to leckhampton that day um oh no simon uh green did as well Simon green and i made it to from leckhampton to weymouth that day so anyway i was about two hours into the flight and i felt really distracted and I got to Westbury and I looked down at Westbury and I couldn't see any pilots. I was like, hang on, it's like a northwesterly. Why is there no pilots? So I radio. This is where's is there any pilots down on Westbury? Nothing on the radio. Okay, so I go, I get my phone out, and I'm above Westbury at about six grand. And I just type on the telegram. Any pilots at Westbury who can give me a lift back to Bristol if I spiral down? No answer. So done literally pottering about over Westbury, fly out over Melksham or somewhere, potter about, get high, I'm looking again. Oh, fuck it, then I'll fly to Weymouth. And that's exactly what happened. I said, fuck it, I'll fly to Weymouth. So I just flew then down to Weymouth. But I was so distracted over Westbury, I was going to spiral down and land. And then once I knew there was no one there to give me a lift, I got my head in. Boom, I didn't think about anything else then. And I just flew all the way to Weymouth. Great flight, loved it. On my own, I was on my own for most. Met with Cy Green once, but then I, I was on a Zeno, he was on a King, so I was just gone. And um, yeah, I got down to Weymouth, I landed, I was like, that's fucking brilliant. But for the first bit, I was so distracted and I couldn't settle in that I was going to spoil down and land, you know? Yeah. But that meditative, clear mind, when I paraglide, people don't understand. People see it as a bit crazy and you're flying in the air. They don't understand that it can be, it can be that. It can be like a, Re- like meditative or rehabilitate rehabilitative for people they just get up there and they just I like because I've got another angle so I definitely the meditative thing and I the hit that I got from it I didn't realise at first that's what it was was that I've got a really monkey mind that goes all over the place all the time I find it really hard to concentrate and then I'm landing and I, the thing I liked most about paragliding was landing and then I'd land and go and I'm just absolutely elated you know yeah uh, mind orgasm like, oh my god that's the most brilliant thing ever and it's, sometimes it wasn't that big a deal but I just you know if I'd just done even a little poxy little cross country or anything that challenged me though I'd have to really concentrate when I landed I just felt absolutely fantastic 
an hour you can't wait to land you land you can't wait to take off again yeah but the other the other not the flip side of that at all but a complementary to that is I'm naturally also a really anxious person and I always was I can't remember not being as a little kid I was just I I went and saw a psychologist and she said it was something to do with around the circumstances of my birth and it just means that people that have that set of things happen generally end up being very anxious people so whether that's true or not I've no idea but that's what she said so I was always 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 anxious I dealt with it in school by being like you were saying about being an entertainer that was it because something getting beaten up I could make everybody laugh so that that worked that's a class I liked the attention but then I found then I used to race ride motorbikes and I just just riding stupid fast because it had like reset the base level so if I was, I, I find this really hard to describe mathematically, but if everybody else's base level of anxiety is one, mine would be seven. Yeah. So, but if I took it up to 14 or 20, then comparatively my seven would go down to where their one was. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense really. So riding a motorbike till I got right to the edge, I go, fuck, I nearly got that wrong, going into a bend too fast and the back end starts to yeah, break away. So that becomes normal. Yeah, so then when I go back to just doing 90 miles an hour through the lanes, that seems perfectly normal compared to that just trying to take that bend at 90. Yeah. And the same with paragliding. So I could go there worried about my bank balance. But when I'm trying to survive, then worrying about that other little silly thing or have I fallen out with that person just seems so unimportant yeah. that it kind of resets the base level of and so the anxiety's gone then and it works really well and I thing is I found that that works the other way around is if I don't fly for quite a long time which is what happened this year coincidentally I was really busy bought a new house da 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 it was probably one of the longest layoffs I'd had from Paragon and then I came back to the strongest year we've ever had and the combination of the two was fatal. I was just like crapping myself. Every time yeah. I went up, I was like, holy shit, yeah. another seven meter a second thermal. Oh, help. Yeah, it was a bad year this year. It was a bad, uh, like, it was full on, you know, it was full on. Exactly. It's a long period of time. There were lots of accidents happening. No, I know. Even though you know these accidents are, are happening a lot of the time because it's people. But then you, every time you go to fire, like, another accident yesterday and were, yeah, there were people who were really experienced who got spanked as well I was thinking oh my god they're better than me and even they couldn't cope with it and I was thinking oh god and it just got on top of me and in the end I went right this is that intuition things going on here I am not up to speed this year yeah. there'll be other years it's got too much now it'll ease off and of course everybody thought well, it'll last a month it'll last yeah. six weeks it'll last two months and it just kept going and going and going. I kept thinking, well, it will start to come back down again. And when it does, I'll get back in the air. And then there'll be another couple of sporty days, but I'll be up to speed by then. But at the moment, I am not up to speed. And therefore, it actually is dangerous because I'm not... My reactions are not going to be good enough to cope with strong conditions right now. Or so I thought. And I thought, well, I don't want to find out. So I just backed right off. So 2018 yeah. was the worst year. I flew the least in 2018 than I've ever flown yeah yeah since i started oh yeah and I, it was the best year we've ever had yeah i flew hours upon hours this year but i was training for the x pair so 2018 i really flew and also the strong conditions as where somebody saw them as bad they were very positive for me because i was getting ready to go to the pyrenees yeah, and fly in june or july and i've, and I've so, you know and, and i've looked back and looked, one of them when you were talking about memories on on um <clears throat> gopro i looked back on films just because i was going through some archive stuff today and i was like 
films of me talking to the camera when it's going absolutely bonkers and the is going off the scale yeah. and the wind's collapsing and I'm going oh blimey this is a bit much and I'm laughing and like, yeah. it's like wow and I thought well that actually helps me think well you can do it mate just yeah. it's weird though isn't it how things are how those things do affect you I mean I uh, so I, I read a book one of my it's a book I really love and it's um, it's called Born Standing Up by um, oh, Steve Martin the comedian Steve yeah. Martin and uh it's a really good book. I really liked it. It's about his life and his, how he became a stand-up comedian, etc. And he starts referencing in there these feelings that he has. And I get exactly the same thing. And I was like, that's weird. So it's, I get it when I paraglide, when I'm driving at night sometimes. And I'll be driving down the motorway and all of a sudden it feels like I'm not there. Like I'm not really there. It feels like I'm dreaming it. Or that I'm maybe... 30 foot above it watching it happen it feels like I'm I'm just not there it feels really weird and then quickly followed by a shortening of breath like fucking hell fucking hell, fucking hell. come on come on I have to turn the radio up or I look at text messages on my phone and I just come on and then last maybe a minute and I'm okay again so I've got them for years went to the doctor about them thought it was weird so this is like what is this is happening like so the doctor's like oh there's a form of vertigo etc so I'm reading Steve Martin's book and he described pinpoint exactly what I get. I was like, it's the first one I've ever seen anyone. Describe. I describe it to people, they're like, yeah, I think I've had that. And I'm like, you don't get it. So then <laughs> I, he, I was like, what the? then he goes and says, he saw somebody and it's um, a panic attack, like an anxiety panic attack. I'm like, fuck off. Of all people who are not going to get anxiety or a panic attack is me. That shit doesn't happen to me. What, are you crazy? I don't get anxious about anything. And these situations happen when I'm not anxious in the slightest. I'm, I'm driving at night. It's cruise controls on. I'm listening to a podcast. What am I going to be anxious or get panic attack for? Don't be fucking stupid. And it's a disassociative um, or I think it's disassociative sort of anxiety attack or something. So I was like, no, no fuck, fuck off next, next time, time I get one I know that it's happened, happened and Kooji comes on I'm like fuck I feel weird now it feels like I'm not really here, here. and I'm, so, so it happens I'm like yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not going to panic this time no because I know it's happening and I can't control it there's no way you can stop that gas that takeaway of your breath shortly after I was like fuck man because I mean I haven't had one now for maybe six months and all of a sudden what happened when I'm driving my car and what it is is you get so consumed with what you're involved in as in for me it's driving you get so focused on looking at the road ahead of you the lights the white lines going past you the drone of the podcast going on your ears that all of a sudden your brain is shut off to so many different inputs that as soon as you acknowledge one of those inputs again your brain's confused about what's happened and it's like people have you ever driven your car and you're like I don't remember the last three exits all the time yeah yeah so it's the same thing it's basically You've, you've done, done that, that you shut, shut off and then your brain recognises it. Sh- you shut off and it doesn't know how to fucking cope and that's basically all it is it's a disassociation of where you are for years I had it and I this thing would happen get when I paraglide because I don't think of anything when I paraglide I'll literally be flying I'm like 5,000 feet on a Zeno don't need to worry about a climb for ages looked at the clouds cloud looked good in front of me I'm on four bar now I can ignore that. Just along. Ten minutes later, you're still on glide or something, and then I'm like, "Fuck! Oh fuck!" Because I'm so disassociated. I'm not checking my instruments. I'm not listening to the wind. I'm not looking for a bird flying. I can see the cloud. 
and it's happened to me and it's just yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so I read about it, it. I, was like, I was like fuck that's exactly, that's exactly what happens to me, to me. Dissociative. dissociative you could just, just get so engrossed that meditative state from paradise is so engrossed in my my brain, brain does not think it don't go outside of the world. No. I stay completely in what I do. I guess they call it like, I'm in the now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so in the now, though. My brain, my brain is, is not, not, I'm like, 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 all the noise that's happening all the time in my head is every now and again I just go silent and I go tunnel vision and then my brain has to catch right now. Oh, wow, I'd, I'd really like to understand more of what goes on in my brain because it definitely doesn't always help. It's just not, definitely not always on my side. You know, sometimes it does stuff that is not helpful at all. And I'm thinking, what the hell was all that about? And I kind of know a little bit. I did do a little bit of therapy for a while, which was a weird sort of coincidence. I sort of fell into it. I didn't go, oh, I need to see a therapist. It just sort of happened. And it was fascinating. I didn't find it remotely intrusive or any of the... There was no crying and all the stuff that I thought was going on. It wasn't like goodwill hunting. It was... Um, she didn't go, it's not your fault. <laughs> it is definitely your fault. I'm From knowing you, Martin, it was your fault. Whatever it was that happened, it was your fault. I think that people get confused or they get drawn along with the... Um, what the, uh, oh, what's the, the connotations of what therapy is and I think if you're someone who doesn't really talk about your feelings or don't really talk about what you're thinking you your brain will just start to talk to yourself and it's not that you're going mad and it's not that everyone has these noises that it's about recognising the, the voice isn't you it's going on in your brain and it's talking about things that have happened in your life but it's not you because you can quite simply not want to hear it and you can hear it so you're like Ah, that's, that's not me. me. That's just my brain keeping like ticking over. Yeah. And I, I learned that from reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle books and stuff like that. A lot of um, mindfulness stuff, a lot of psychology books, uh, Nietzsche stuff, etc. So understanding and reading those. So I say understand. I don't, I'm not sure I understand it. My interpretation of these things. Once I'd done that and I started to look a bit more introspectively, I could suddenly say, I would sit down to meditate for 10 minutes, guided even, and still they would creep in. Guided meditation, still I'd get that voice. I'd be sat there and I'd go, ah, okay, yeah. And I'd just, you're not even like to say, okay, I'm going to think about how my legs are feeling. No, just sat there, you're quiet. And it's, it'll say, feel how your bum feels against the floor. Feel the pressure and you hear that. And all of a sudden it'd be like, and then I'm like, you have to say, oh, what are you doing now? Get back to thinking about your bum. Because it's not you, it's, it's literally not your consciousness, it's subconscious. Yeah. So uh, once I'd started to do that, now I can do it all the time. If I start to drive my car and it happens, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's still really, really difficult. I'm not saying to have achieved Zen, <laughs> not in the slightest. It's really difficult. I recognise it more now and I can realise like, that's not me shut up boom and you just go back to trying to stay in that state but I think not enough people do talk like you were saying about therapists not enough people say even something like this this podcasting not enough people talk about shit no look and I've lost a couple of friends recently I say recently over the last couple of years to suicide and De it, depression's bla blamed and I think depression is an illness and it exists, depression's blamed and sometimes I think there's no way that was depression 
you just didn't have a way to vent or didn't have a way to express or you couldn't see the way and then a lot of time there's drugs involved like even if it's just recreational drugs but I think people need to understand like you need to fucking talk solitary confinement's torture for a reason yeah absolutely you need to talk and you need to share and you need to and if that's when a therapist because you can disconnect or disassociate from them then fucking do it just talk just I mean I'm never going to be accused of not talking enough but just talk and like you said then like when you said you saw that therapist and you it helped it helped and if that's what's helping for you for me I can meditate and I can read books that helps that's what helps keep seeing the fucking therapist yeah well I definitely the other thing you talked about earlier on yoga I mean that is that's a good the thing I found that worked that I, I tried to I did med- guided meditation once on a skiing holiday and I thought it was outstanding, and I, and I was, and the guy that did it was very good, and I was like, wow, I want to do that again. And we did it a couple of times when we got back to Britain, and we said, well, we're going to start doing it regularly. And as per normal, these things don't work out, and we didn't. And then yonks later, absolutely decades later, I started doing yoga because somebody said I, oh, I would really benefit me, and I liked it. I got on with it. It was quite a strong form of yoga, so it wasn't to sort of, you know, I was worried it's been a bit namby-pamby. It was bloody hard work, seriously shaking and sweating by the end of it. But what I found with that was that it kind of pummeled you into a state that you were sort of manipulative. So it was, you know, you're just sort of beaten into submission, basically. So by the end of the 90 minutes, you're so knackered that she, and she's a really lovely lady, the lady that does it. And she's do a thing called bloga. So it's blokes yoga, just only blokes. Because she said, you're not going to be as flexible as the girls and the big problem with men is they're so competitive they'll look round the room and they'll try and outdo the person who's best in the room and that will be a woman and you just don't bend that way so you're not going to be able to do it so it's better for with blokes we kind of amplify the problem a bit because you're all men but we're going to bring it up all the time stop competing so i used to do it with my eyes closed because i would i just go paul can do it i must be able to do it and um but anyway we do all this you get pummeled by the end of it absolutely shattered she lay you down put your socks back on and she'd come around and tuck put a blanket over you and tuck you in which is like a really and it's really strange layer it brings you back to being like a little kid yeah and whether you liked it or not it'd be the hardest bloke in the world you go oh god this is nice and then she'd get you to close your eyes and then she'd do these relaxation exercises and then she'd take you on a guided meditation and it and i could do it like the first two times I resisted a bit and then for the next three four years however long I did it until I got this shoulder injury I could go into it straight away then and she, she was brilliant at it but I think it was that being exhausted first just put you in a very very receptive state and I found that as incredibly therapeutic I just find the next two days I was yeah, yeah. doing really well I've been doing a bit of yoga lately I like hot yoga because I like to sweat so I like when I'm doing something I like to feel like I'm sweating and it's hard work now yoga is really hard work whether I do it in a cold room or a hot room but I won't sweat necessarily if I do it in a, in a cold room so when I do it in hot yoga I'm sweating so like my, my brain tells myself oh you're, you're working hard here I'm happier you know yeah. if I'm not I'll try and push myself through um, poses that I shouldn't do but I'll do it because I don't feel like I'm working hard enough. So I like to do hot yoga for, for that reason, which is really fucking stupid, I know. Um, but yoga is the physical embodiment of meditation for me. I, I love... Because for me, exercise is getting punched, kicked, grappled, choked, arm lock, leg lock, strangled, sprinting as fast as I can on a treadmill, rolling as hard as I can on a rowing machine. Yoga, for me, is the physical 
representation, representation of meditation. It's telling, telling my body to, uh, to, to push itself and take itself further, further whilst, whilst doing very, something, something very minimal comparatively. comparatively. So, so for me, me yoga is really good and it's so, so I think everybody should be doing yoga. For me, I think in schools, from as early as five, we should be teaching meditation. Five minutes a day. Get, when you have your story time, they've started doing it in some schools, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness. Meditation. Mindfulness. So boom. I think. I think it will. It can alleviate mental illness and it can alleviate um, things like perceived ADHD, etc. So, mindfulness and yoga. Get the kids doing some mild yoga. You know, just some little poses, some little stretches. Get them to feel their body, understand their body more. I think those two things uh, into schools would be fantastic. That's, that's only from, from my take from them and, and <clears throat> i put a thing up a post up on facebook the other day about depression and how people should exercise if you don't feel like you can talk go and exercise and get to a point where you feel like you can talk but make sure you have one of two things in your life someone to talk to or exercise if you can have both because if you're feeling i've never been depressed i never suffer a mental illness but from understanding mental illness from reading about and understanding depression the only um, drug or there's never been a drug proven to cure everything doesn't exist one drug would xanax might deal with this or something else might deal with this exercise is proven scientifically to help depression anxiety all of them um, Talking is proven scientifically to help depression, everything, cures everything. So for me, I said, exercise. Now, people hear exercise, they think they've got to join a gym. But put a 10 minute beginner's yoga thing on the TV, 10 minutes in your front room, get your body to do something a bit more extreme than it did yesterday. Get your muscles to ache a little bit and let your body, let your mind focus so much on the ache in your muscles it, it forgets the ache in your brain or the ache in your heart or in your soul get your your body to need to repair the physical so much it needs it doesn't need to worry about the mental that it's repairing just do these things go for a walk breathe the air walk the dog throw a ball 50 times for the dog just do these things i i honestly believe that they are the cure the cure lies within the physical and mental exertion of exercise and I think yoga is a great representation of that because it's not as intense unless you make it intense and it can be so fucking so hard sometimes when I go it's not that intense it doesn't have to be that intense but it, it certainly works it's certainly a workout certainly a workout brilliant I think that's kind of where we came in that seems like a good place to round it all up yeah yeah I think so it's been a uh, we're two hours in so yeah perfect and you've got to drive home yet um, listen it was great talking to you I feel like we could just carry on for for ages, so we'll get another one done. Um, but that it was great talking to you. Thank you very much for uh, coming on. People are going to love to hear it, I'm sure. And we will get. I'll, I'll post it up. We'll get a picture shortly. I'll post it up. You share it. We'll get friends to share it, and people can follow you and your exploits and stuff as well. So yeah, Martin Craig, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, guys. Catch you again soon.